Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina. Because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it starts now. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, March 22nd, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Rev. Oh, good morning. So the Gamecocks have a basketball coach? I think so. And his name is Lamont Sanford? I yep. mean, Lamont Paris, right? <laughs> yep. Lamont Remember Paris. Lamont Sanford? I do. That That's uh, the, the son and business partner of Fred, Fred G. G. Sanford. That's right. And G stands for get the hell out of my house. <laughs> Or in this case, G stands for Gamecocks. <laughs> there you go. There, yeah, you know, you being being creative here. Yeah. So yeah, the Gamecocks have hired um, Lamont Paris. Okay, from UT Chattanooga. Okay, right. um, how did that coaching search work out? <sighs> should should I mean, we just jump the, right you know, in? You're, 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 you are. The, I mean, I, I'm critical. I mean, I'm highly yeah. critical. It didn't yep. take long for me to go down that road. You are um, the kinder. Yeah, of the duo, and, and more of a casual observer. I don't really follow college basketball that okay. closely. Okay. I was very interested when the Gamecocks went to the Final Four that year, uh, but just in fair general, fair with the fan, fair with the fan. But just, I mean, most in fans general, do. if they're playing and there's nothing else on, I'll check it out. That's, okay. that's kind of the way I. I so roll what do you? Your 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 summation of the coaching search? Well, of course they fired Frank Martin. Mm-hmm. Probably time. Mm-hmm. Not not 100% convinced it was time, but probably time. Um, I was far more convinced then than I am now. Well, and, and that's kind of <laughs> kind of where I was. You swapped uh, Lamont Paris for Frank Martin. Right. We'll see. So it, it seems like they had uh, several candidates, like choice number one, mm-hmm. uh, Miller, who mm-hmm. ended up going to Xavier, right? Or Tom Herman in days gone by with well, football search. Oh, well, yeah. See, some parallels there, okay. I guess. Or Kirby uh, Smart in, in football searches days gone by. And uh, Furman Or Kevin coach. O'Sullivan in baseball coaching <laughs> in days gone by. Saying there's a pattern. I'm just saying, I'm stating facts. So they, they uh, Miller, and then there were some other names, uh, Bob Ritchie at Furman, mm-hmm. and uh, some other names, and then we, I heard B.J. Mackey, who's, mm-hmm. a, who's a legendary player with All-time the Gamecocks. All-time leading scorer at the yeah. Gamecocks. Uh, who certainly is one that you would think would, would want to be there and would cherish the job, right? So he didn't get chosen. Um, and, I, and I don't know, uh, Lamont Paris. I got to believe that somebody at the university is a big Sanford and Son fan. And the name Lamont. Or either they're, they're big fans of France and Paris. Uh, so there's a couple of double see, whammies here. Uh, especially if members, um, if the university personnel responsible for making this decision, if they like to watch Sanford and Son and have gone to Paris. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then it's obvious B.J. Mackey had no chance. Lamont Paris or B.J. Mackey? Um, and I did bring up those names a second ago. Um, when Steve Spurrier left, Tom Herman was to become the coach, and something happened. And then Kirby Smart was to become the coach, and something happened. When Chad Holbrook was fired as baseball head coach or resigned as baseball head coach after Ray Tanner left, um, a, a probably the best-run Gamecock athletics have ever had. Two consecutive national championships, uh, playing in the College World Series final for a third championship, lost to Arizona. Um, Holbrook is hired. He was Ray Tanner's top assistant. Uh, he's not getting it done, so they get rid of him. Um, Kevin O'Sullivan, the head baseball coach at the University of Florida, was to be the coach at South Carolina. Something happened. Sean Miller, after the dismissal of Frank Martin, 
is to be named. Uh, they're, they're, they're close to making a deal, and something happens. So the point I'm trying to make here, um, during the Tanner era, with all due respect to Ray Tanner, and he, but you got to be, I mean, you got to call it like it is. You can't sugarcoat these sorts of things. You can be friends and, and appreciate all the guys doing and be critical of certain aspects of this run. Um, it began with Tom Herman, and something happened. It didn't, Kirby Smart, something happened. Uh, Kevin O'Sullivan, something happened. Sean Miller, something happened. Um, people that are really, really good at these jobs expect something to happen and be prepared for addressing when something happens. And we just not appear to be ready when something happens. When Tom Herman says, I'm um, thank you, but no thank you. I mean, I think Herman said yes, and then something happened. I don't have any idea. Uh, my wife asked me yesterday, what could happen? I said a million things. I mean, the wife doesn't want to come. You know, the, the, I don't. There's a million things that can go wrong in some of these negotiations. Um, coach gets cold feet. I mean, we talked about Bobby Crimmins yesterday. Something's always happening. The reason you pay somebody nearly a million dollars a year is to address when something does happen. Um, I've, I've told you before. My son, my oldest son, expressed to me one day. Um, Dad, you act like everything's going wrong that day. I said, I do. I prepare for everything going wrong. I don't expect everything to go wrong, but I prepare as if everything could go wrong on that given day. And I think when you're in one of these jobs, you got to expect the unexpected and you got to be prepared for the unexpected. You got to be able to move and, and adjust accordingly. And we just don't seem to, over the last 10 years, be able to adjust when, 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 when Tom Herman gets cold feet or something happened. I don't have any idea what happened, but something did. You, you've got to have a plan. You've got to have an expectation going into these negotiations that something is going to happen. What do I do when something does happen? You know what happens if something doesn't happen? Everything goes just as you imagined it would. <laughs> right. But you've got to go into these things believing that something is going to happen that's going to force me to kind of, um, you know, change speeds, change gears, uh, move in a different direction. And it just appears to me that when, when something does happen, we're not real good at it. Just not real good at it all at all. I mean, I wish Lamont Paris nothing but the best. Nothing but the best. But Frank Martin, Lamont Paris, um, you'd ask 50 ADs in America that run college basketball programs who they'd rather have. I would argue 40 of the 50 would probably say, give me Frank Martin over Lamont Paris, but we shall see. I mean, there's a, um, I think there'll be an announcement at press conference probably sometime today, and it'll be the typical, you know, he's the only guy we offer the job to, you know, uh, but, but nobody's buying that anymore. I mean, there's they're serious issues. You know, I grew up believing or I grew up hearing that the University of South Carolina's major problem was it was too close to the state house and politics were too involved in the affairs of the University of South Carolina. And I kind of dismissed, oh, that's just, yeah, I'm sure every university has politics. No, it's the case. I mean, it is absolutely uh, the case. It is what it is. So I wish, um, I wish mine and your Gamecocks and Lamont Paris nothing, nothing but the best. But I'm not going to dedicate much time to the basketball coaching search at South Carolina or the lack of a basketball so coaching search at South Carolina. I want to go back to something we touched on yesterday because I had someone inquire about um about something we've been talking about here, and that is the the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. Do we have a call? We do. Okay, let's get to the phone. Roger may have a comment about this coaching situation or something along those lines. Hey, Roger. Good morning, fellas. How y'all doing? Mm -hmm. uh, morning. Before he got up, before he got off the basketball deal, 
Um, you know, one thing maybe you can answer for me that I can't get an answer to, probably you can't either. Uh, with Carolina this year, and you know me being a Clemson guy, you know, I would give credit to Carolina a little bit. I want to know how in the devil do you justify at the NIT putting Vanderbilt there, who had a 7-11 and conference record, and 17-16 and overall, and leaving out South Carolina with an 18-13 and 9-9 and conference record? How do you even justify that? At all. I don't think, you, Roger, the only explanation I've heard is the net ratings, you know, this computerized or computer-generated uh, set of rankings. Bunch of BS. Well, I mean, but, and here's the problem with the net ranking. I mean, you can, I can talk. The problem with the net ranking is that the preseason counts. In other words, if Vanderbilt is expected to be a top 25 team and they just, I mean, they, they stink it up and are nowhere near as good as people expected them to do, they still benefit from starting in the top 25. And if South Carolina is expected to struggle this year and they're number 78 in the net ratings, Vanderbilt, I mean, you see where I'm headed? It's, I mean, South yeah, Carolina has a lot of games to be made and, and Vanderbilt's got to really, really struggle. I mean, I'm with you. That There is no other reason than the, um, the bogus net ratings. Well, you know, you go back to, and the last point I make, um, you know, folks on TigerNet all the time are fussing, you know, about Brunel, and I can understand some of the justifications. But you take Wake, you know, I never thought the ACC was as weak in basketball this year as they, the national perspective, you know, said. I never thought they were that weak, and I think that's playing out now. But if, you, if the latest way you rate teams to put them in and out of the NCAA is based on preseason, like you're saying, and all of that, then Clemson will never go back to the NCAA because Wake Forest wins 22 games this year gets left out. Now, it used to be if you win 20 games, you're going to be in. Mm-hmm. Now, you know how I feel anyway. I think you ought to have to win your conference to get in. There ought to be 16 teams. But at the same time, if you're going to have this format and you play in a Power 5 conference and you win 22 ball games and don't get in, well, Clemson will never get in. I mean, <laughs> that'll never happen. Uh, and it's going to be difficult for some of these other teams to get in, too. I mean, if you can win 22 and, and not get in <laughs> – I mean, what's the point? Yeah, I hear you. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate it. And and Roger's a bigger basketball fan than most Clemson fans. I mean, he, he's a football guy first, but he's still a bigger basketball fans uh, fan than most Clemson sports fans are. I mean, a lot of Clemson fans, and I think they do it a little bit like South Carolina, and in some ways, kind of a um a, a, a deflection mechanism. I don't care about basketball. Well, you're a Clemson fan, you probably do care to some degree about basketball, but it's kind of a default. Um, we're good at football. I don't care anything about uh, basketball. I don't care. Yeah, we'll, you know, we'll win every now, every now and then. The point I'm trying to make here, and I want to be careful because I don't, I, mean, I don't want to sever ties and I don't want to, you know, uh, cause problems with friendships. But, but the problem is that the, that the college, the college athletic landscape has become uniquely different than it ever has been. And the reason that's the case is money. I mean, it's money. I mean, the SEC, uh, the money. I mean, how many times have we heard that, Rev? Uh, the SEC, this contract, this television contract with ESPN and ABC. It just and, means more yeah, money. it just means more. I mean, the money, 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 money. I mean, that's all we hear now. Um, how much money these universities have. How much coaches 
uh, how much money we pay the coaches, how much money uh, we ask the fans for. It's all about money, money, money. You ask the fans to contribute enormous amounts of money so you can go hire the best coaches and pay them a lot of money. And, and a lot of the, the, the revenue generated to improve the facilities is the SEC money or the ACC money as a derivative or a direct uh, result of the uh, television contracts. Um, Texas A&M is expected to be really good. Why? They got a lot of money. I mean, wait till Texas and Oklahoma come to the SEC. Watch what happens to the college football landscape. Why? Because Texas and Oklahoma have a lot of money. I mean, you can't talk college athletics today without talking about money. Well, if, if, it's, if that's the central theme, if money is the driver to success, uh, the wealthiest programs are going to be the most successful, um, then why not have a business guy in charge? I've never understood that. Why have an academic or a, or a bureaucrat I mean, if, you, if you've accepted and agreed, whether you like it or not, that the, the game of college athletics today is predominantly about money. How much money does Clemson get for their college football contract? How much money do we pay Dabo Sweeney? How much money do the Gamecocks get as a result of the SEC contract? How much money can we pay the new basketball coach? How much money should we pay Don Staley? How much money does it cost to sit in the luxury boxes at Clemson? I mean, if all the talk is about money, and we believe that money leads to winning, then why do you hire an institutionalist or a bureaucrat or a, uh, with all due respect, to form a former baseball coach to run a multi-million dollar business enterprise? It just doesn't make any sense to me. You've got to go out and find a proven, business-minded um, athletic director. It's the no-brainer of all no-brainers as far as I'm concerned, and that's not insulting anybody or, or it should be insulting anybody. I guess is you know, saying someone is not doing as good a job as you think they need to do for you to be successful in college athletics. But, I mean, how many times do we talk about college athletics without mentioning money? It's always and money. We, and we know what big business it is. Sure, that's it's a honest. huge yeah. business. Well, if it's a huge business, who do you need in charge of it? A business person. A, bit, a person who understands the nature would like and the complexities of business. I would like to know. So if you went through, you know, choice number one, two, possibly three or four. Well, I mean, Bob Ritchie, you talking about basketball coach? Yeah. I mean, Bob Ritchie yesterday at Furman took his name out of the hat. That, that was my point and said, well, you know, I love I love the university, but it's just not a fit for me right now. I mean, that's just a, an excuse. I'd like to know well, the real reason. Well, that's just him reason. saying, I'm not going to be a part of this circus. Right. I mean, this is not the right time. This coching search has because gotten it's so an, off it's the rails. A, it's SEC. I mean, it's it's an elite job. It well, pays I, I very know. well. It's an elite job when it comes to pay because of the SEC's right. ability. To, and it's in the SEC. So, But, but it's still, I mean, it's, it's a good job. It's a better job than Furman. I mean, there's no doubt about it. If the University of South Carolina offers the job to the head coach at Furman and the head coach at Furman says thank you, but no thank you, something's wrong with the University of South Carolina. I mean, there are issues internally that have to be addressed and fixed if you're going to get better at athletics. And, and I, the point I'm trying to make here is it's a business. Find business-minded people to run the business. And if it's all about the money, Find business-minded people who understand how to maximize the potential of whatever uh, amount of money you got coming in. That, that, it, it's not complicated to me. I mean, finding the right guy and doing the job is probably complicated, but it's not complicated to create the criteria or the potential resume of someone that needs to be in charge. Not this University of South Carolina, but the Clemson Athletic Department. Any of these big athletic departments that depend on X number of dollars coming in so they can pay the coaches and uh, that they can run the, the enterprise. I mean, we got $50 million football operations building. But imagine that. I mean, at Clemson and South Carolina both, they have on campus or near the campus a $50 million 
football operations building. You've got an indoor practice facility that's ten or fifteen million dollars. You've got a stadium that's worth what three, four hundred million dollars, five hundred million dollars. Um, and then you've got these other sports, basketball and baseball and all these other. I mean, it's a hard job. It's a complicated job, but it's a job that pays a lot of money. And those guys that get paid a lot of money to be really good at that job succeed. Those that get paid a lot of money to be very average at that job end up being very, very average. And uh, uh, and and I said it yesterday, but it's worth repeating that uh, we we did have an athletic department, athletic director that lured uh, Lou Holtz and a Steve Spurrier to come to South Carolina to coach football. We did. So it can be done. Sure it can. And will be done again. 843-661-0937 is our number. We'll be back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Dale in Florence. Good morning. Hey, guys. Um, you know, it is pretty interesting to see what these colleges are going to do um, with, with the NIL stuff, the name, image, likeness. You know, that's what's going to be uh, successful. I mean, you look at some of these kids are getting – Good Lord, a million dollars a year. And, you know, any coach now is going to have to play that game as well as winning, recruiting, uh, actual coaching, teaching of the game, whichever game it is. And that's going to be pretty interesting to see if the Blue Bloods stay the Blue Bloods or if some, you know, fresh young thing is going to come out and he's he's all the rage he's done good at bad schools and so forth and and he's been able to recruit some people whether through like like chip kelly or some of these guys that start out at a school you've never heard of and, and end up at notre dame or wherever um i think that mill money is going to come into a lot of it luckily Luckily, though, spring training and baseball has started, and we can forget about this basketball crap by the end of the month because nobody really cares about pro basketball anyways. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. You know, the one comment <laughs> I'll make, and we'll get back yep. to politics, in this, but this is a little bit political. The, the universities that understand, I mean, I, I hear a lot of complaining and a lot of um, praising on NIL. It's time. Uh, this is going to complicate the game. So as it is in every fundamental debate, there's a pro and a con. There's one side and another. Rev likes the NIL. I don't. Um, or, or vice versa. I'm, I'm just saying that hypothetically. I don't know how Rev feels about the NIL. I like it. But I think the um, I think any time yeah, I kind of like it. Any time you have a negotiation where both sides have leverage, it's an interesting and more fair um, negotiation. And for a long time, the kid had very little leverage in the affairs of how much. He generated for the university and how he's able to be compensated. You know, it's easy to talk about the cheating in college football and the and the cheating in college basketball. The, the reality is the university was cheating that kid out of his potential. I'm not saying pay the kid like a pro, but if the if the NCAA had been more willing to say, look, these kids are generating enormous amounts of money for these universities, and the universities are getting 99.9% of the money, we've got to figure out a way to create a mere, a more fair scenario where, where the kid does enjoy, maybe not now, but some deferred benefit to come down, down the road. So the NIL was basically, it's a little bit like the Republican Party. Had the Republican Party listened to its voters and genuinely represented the interests of the Republicans' Uh, and, and what they wanted done in Washington, Donald Trump would have never won. 
I mean, it would have been Jeb Bush or John Kasich or Rand Paul or, or Chris Christie or Marco Rubio. Why? Because the Republicans felt like the, the Republican office holders were listening to them. Why did people vote for Trump? Because nobody felt um, the people Republicans sent to Washington were paying any attention after they solicited your vote and kind of went off the reservation, did what they wanted to do, went to Washington and, you know, go along and get along. And the Republican voters had had enough of that. Well, I think the kids had had enough of that. The families of the kids had had enough of that. And, and you know, obviously the pendulum swings, you know, when, when one side has no leverage in a negotiation and all of a sudden they get leverage, they're going to probably abuse it to some degree. And I think that's kind of where we are now. But I want to go back to the central point I'm trying to make here. And I know I'm right about this. I mean, I am positive I'm right about this. College athletics is a big business now. It's not a Saturday afternoon affair. Let's get together and play a football game at 1.30 on Saturday afternoon, Joe Paul on one side and Bear Bryant on the other side. I mean, that, that was a hotly contested athletic affair, but it was not a business endeavor. It has become an unbelievably complicated business endeavor. Basketball, football, to some degree baseball and women's basketball. But, but just by and large, football drives the train, especially down south. You get in some of the metropolitan areas and some of the ACC schools, uh, it's basketball, a big contributor. Um, Duke probably makes much more money on its basketball program than it does his football program. North Carolina, I would imagine the same. Um, Kentucky, uh, Kentucky's a blue blood, but Kentucky's in the SEC. And the predominance of money generated by the SEC is in what? In football. So Kentucky's kind of an outlier when it comes to uh, the priorities and what their crowd and what their fans really appreciate. It's a basketball school, but it's pretty good in football. Not this year. Well, I mean, you know, well, you're right, but it's pretty good in football because uh, the, the SEC almost requires them to be competitive in football. But the point I'm trying to make is, and I think this is the um, this is where we're headed. If I were on the board at USC and in charge of finding the next athletics director at South Carolina, you know where I'd go? I'd go to the entertainment world. I'd go to I'd go to Facebook or Twitter. I'd go to ESPN. I'd go to a, um, a, a professional sports franchise. Somebody who already understands that they are in the business of athletics. They're in the business of entertaining and, and sports. It's not just, you know, uh, the nostalgic Saturday afternoon football game between Penn State and Alabama where, where 40,000, you know, rabid fans come and the tickets are $6 a piece and it may or may not be on television. I mean, this is a this is a big deal now, and I think Clemson and South Carolina will be forced sooner than later to make that commitment, understanding that we don't run a college athletic program any longer. We run um, a Fortune 500 business, you know, a, a hundred and fifty or two hundred million dollar, which wouldn't be a Fortune 500, but you know what I'm saying here. I mean, a big business. I mean, it's a it's a two hundred two hundred twenty five million dollar a year, you know, business, and it's multifaceted, it's complicated, and and, and to find a former coach. Or a, or a former, you know, a, a guy that graduated in sports and tourism at the University of Miami, with all due respect to Miami. No, you go out and find a hard-nosed business guy who knows how to uh, negotiate contracts, who knows how to do liabilities and expenditures, who understands the bottom line of a business, and that's how you run it. Um, I've told my buddies at USC, go find you a guy with reading glasses and a Rolex and a briefcase who has flown – uh, business class the last 15 years of his life and hired that guy about 50 years old. I mean, that's the kind of guy and pay him a lot of money. I mean, you're going to have to pay those guys a lot of money, but, but, you know, tell him, Hey, you're in charge of the business 
that is USC Athletics. You're in charge of the business that is Clemson Athletics. And I, I just think that's what, and that's going to be hard to adjust because a lot of these board members have been there a long time. That they, they, they don't want to see things change. You know why they are, are afraid to see things change as much as they are? They feel like they're losing control. And when all of a sudden you've got a freshman quarterback making a million dollars a year, is he any good? We think he is, but we don't know. But Bojangles and, you know what, else? six mm-hmm. or seven of these sponsors have agreed to give him $200,000 a year. And he's got five sponsors. He's making a million dollars a year. The, the board goes, well, I, uh, we, we always had the control in these things. I mean, if that kid's, has, if that kid's making a million dollars, we probably don't have as much control. No, you don't. That's the new normal. A business-minded guy would understand. I'm not saying he would ever embrace that, but he would accept that there's a big difference in embracing and accepting. There are a lot of things I've accepted about business that I don't embrace, but it's just a reality. And it's, and, it's, and it's your job to figure it sure, out. Sure, I mean, and, and the successful ones do. And the ones that don't succeed, they're the ones that bury their head in the saying, man, I wish it wasn't like this. I mean, I liked it better the way it used to be. I mean, we used to do things like this, and we used to do things like that. Well, I mean, you're living in a new world, and you better accept that reality as we move forward. I want to go back to this, talking about money. I want to go back to the Fed. Because somebody said yesterday, so you mean to tell me that the most powerful country on this planet appropriates money via its Congress that it doesn't have, they look to the Fed, they wink and nod, the Fed says, we got this. Just issue some debt. And the Fed buys the debt with money that they don't have but have the ability to create. I said, you nailed it. I said, let me give you a better example. You ever had a construction loan and build a home? You don't live in the home yet. You go to the bank. You say, hey, I want to build a home. I've looked at a piece of property. I've got this property speculated. I've talked to a contractor, and I need you to loan me $250,000 to buy the land and build a home. Now, in today's market, that don't get you much land and home pretty crazy but it doesn't right. in all honesty um and i'm not talking about in some of the um exclusive zip codes of america i'm talking about all over the country um but anyway you go to the bank you get two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and you buy a piece of property and you build a home and you get what they call draws i mean that's that okay so stick with me that's the way things work when you have a construction loan you convert it to a 30-year mortgage or a 15-year mortgage whatever you want to do um that's personal choice and personal finance here's what here's what we're doing you ready we have borrowed the money and built the home. We have sold the home and we spent all the money. And now we're going to get a construction loan. I mean, it's after the fact. In other words, we've already spent the money. We sold the home. We've spent the money and we're going to the bank and say, hey, I've sold the home and spent the money, but I need you to finance that home I used to have. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? It does sound crazy. But in essence, I mean, that, that is a real world <laughs> way of understanding. You sold the home. You spent all the money. You go to your bank and say, hey, can you loan me some money on that home I used to own? I mean, the, the absurdity of what we're allowing this country to become, because we have become so unserious, I just read this morning, if he had the ability, since Cato's not here, we kind of reworked some things around here, and we'll get back at, at some point in time. We'll get, a, um, we'll get the ability to play some of these actuaries, but there's a, there's a talk that Kamala Harris, or Kamala Harris gave in Louisiana about high-speed internet, availability of high-speed internet in rural America. And, and I want you to hear what she has to say, and I want you to understand that she is one heartbeat away from the presidency. So, so this so, is the passage of time thing? Yeah. Oh, I saw that. It is, I mean, it, it's, it's oh. scary. I mean, it, it is scary to watch her, the, the, the lack of understanding 
I mean, she couldn't be AD at Coker College. I mean, she just doesn't have the depth. I mean, she, I'm sorry, she just does not have uh, the, the understanding or depth it takes to, to, to I mean, to be a, a city council member or a county council member. And this lady was an AG and a U.S. senator and is now the vice president of the United States. So when you say that the absurdities of the Fed and what we're doing and how we're doing it, we're, we're getting exactly what we deserve. I mean, if we the people are willing to allow her to be one heartbeat from the presidency, we will ultimately get exactly what we deserve. Let's go to the phone. We have Rujan in Darlington. Good morning, Rujan. Hey, guys. I, I, was, uh, I was listening over the Internet, but I may you know, have had a delay there. But, uh, Ken, I understand the whole NIL thing. However, how are they going to adjust the transfer portal? I mean, because if a kid you know, is playing at South Carolina – and South Carolina doesn't have a good year, and they want to transfer to, say, uh, Alabama or Penn State or Ohio State, what kind of, what kind of, uh, what kind of you know, mechanisms are they going to put in place so he can't do that so he can go get more money? That's the only thing that I see as an issue with this whole uh, NIL thing. That, 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 that's, that's, that's what I'm looking at. Thank you, John. Well, I'll just say yeah, that's this. part of what they have to try to figure well, out. I mean, I mean, but, but I said right? a second ago, if the NCAA had been willing to give the kid and the family some leverage, and I get the cost of an education, and when coaches were making a million dollars a year and assistants were making $200,000 a year and the kid got that education, okay, fair enough. There's some proportionality there. Um, but all of a sudden, the coach is making $10 million, the assistants are making $2.5 and, and the university's got a you know $100 million windfall they're paying a women's basketball coach three million dollars a year. Tight restrictions on what the players can and can't yeah. do. I mean, the player, the player can't work a job. Uh, the, the, I mean, it, it was ridiculous what they were doing to these kids who generated all this money for the program through their work and talent. By well, I mean, the way, th- they were not being compensated. They were the major contributor to the financial dynamic, and right. they weren't being compensated except for the price of an education, which is pretty expensive today. But Rujan's exactly right, and I tried to say with clarity a second ago. Here's what happens in most of these situations. One group of people have a, have a plea, have a complaint. They don't have any leverage. All of a sudden, they get a lot of leverage. And they probably abuse some of that leverage. They'll probably abuse the transfer portal. They'll probably abuse some of the NIL. Some of these companies that are making big plays in the NIL world will probably two or three years from now say, that wasn't worth it. I mean, we can't give that kid 200 grand. We can give him 30 grand or 40 grand, and we'll kind of get back to some equilibrium or some place of equilibrium. In other words, we went from no leverage to all the leverage, transfer portal, NIL, a lot of different creative things that agents are doing for kids. Uh, you call them agents. They're not really agents. consultants. I don't think they'd be called agents. They're, they're consultants. They're consulting for the kid and his family. And, and, but, but eventually, I think in two or three years, It'll it'll have found some some middle ground. I mean, it will have um once again no leverage, abusive leverage. We'll settle somewhere um where you wonder whether the kid is getting a fair. We should be in a place where is the kid getting the best of the university or is the university getting the best of the kid? I mean, if you're a business guy, you're always questioning that. Am I getting value for uh, the amount of money I'm spending? Uh, and and the consumer saying, am I getting, you know, for the amount of money I'm spending, am I getting value? I mean, there's always that yin and yang in these business negotiations. But but I think once the once the floodgates opened and the courts ruled on the side of the player, 
I would have expected the NILs to be crazy and the transfer portals to be crazy, but I think we'll get to a place in a year or two or three where the transfer portal is reasonable. Maybe they have to um, tweak it a bit and change some of the laws and, and stipulations. And I would imagine, um, well, we don't have players' representatives in college athletics yet. We may have that uh, before long, but it's free agency. I mean, in essence, it's free agency. I don't want to play at Clemson anymore. I want to play at Duke. I don't want to play at Duke anymore. I want to play at Pittsburgh. I don't want to play at Pittsburgh. I want to play at Oregon. Um, and right now they have all the flexibility in the world. That will probably be addressed moving forward. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hey, Boudreaux. Good morning, fellas. Uh, I've got another analogy for you, and I, I hope it, it fits there. you talking about uh, uh, Coach um, – uh, the the dish, uh, athletic director there, um, and being in a world that he's unfamiliar with. My boys used to love playing that Madden football game. Ray Tanner, I don't know why I couldn't think of his name for a second. And and that, I got to play in that Madden game. You know, they'd go to bed, I'd pull the Madden game out, and I'd be in coach mode, and I'd play the game. And I saw they had something called owner mode. And I said, well, hell, that'd be, that'd be fun. I'll own the team. So I clicked on that, and boy, that first season was good. I said, this is, I enjoyed it. Then I got to negotiate with my medical staff. See, I got a new contract. I got to hire a new medical staff, and they all got pros and cons. Some keep you from getting injured as much. Some get you back playing quicker and blah. And they all got different contract monies. You got to set everything from how much you charge for popcorn to beer to parking, from the cheap seats up to the, to the luxury suites. Then you got to negotiate with that superstar player that really didn't produce very well last year, but he wants a couple extra million dollars. And then, then when the, after the next season, you got to have upgrades to your stadium, and you got to decide how much you're going to spend on that. Do you want to spend a couple hundred thousand for billboards, or do you want to spend a couple million for TV advertisements? And I'd sit there at night and I'd scratch my head and I'd play Madden. For two hours before I'd go to bed and never throw a damn football. And I thought to myself, this ain't fun at all. And I'm wondering if Ray Tanner hadn't uh, looked at that baseball field and said, God, I wish I was standing on the third baseline right now. Because <laughs> and, 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 I, I would play every night, and I'm negotiating with Ben Roethlisberger, and, and, and I'm like, what the hell? You know, it just everything, that Madden owner mode will make you hate the game of football, I swear <laughs> to God. And I'm wondering how much that equates to where Ray Tanner's at in the AD office. That's interesting. That's a good analogy, Boudreaux. Thank you a lot for that. And that goes back to, um, I mean, I could turn this into a three-hour uh, segment about small business and, you know, the skill set of business and why I think business people, um, I mean, the the – for those that don't run a business, some I mean, of this is a little bit foreign to you, but business people wake up every morning uh, w- with a high degree of uncertainty. I mean, imagine this. I mean, Rev, you, you kind of sort of know what your day looks like. You kind of sort of know what your, well, you know exactly what your pay will be every two weeks. I mean, the small mm-hmm. businessman or woman, I mean, there's so many variables in their lives. And I think, um, and I'll leave sports for a second because I want to say this. I don't think South Carolina has ever had a better coach in any sport than Ray Tanner. I think the record speaks for itself. As much as we adored Spurrier and as larger than life as Steve Spurrier is, the success Spurrier had at South Carolina was was not like the success Ray Tanner had at South Carolina. Spurrier never won an SEC championship. 
Ray Tanner won three NCAA national championships or two. I'm sorry, played for a third and lost Arizona. So, so Ray Tanner, including Don Staley, is the most successful coach South Carolina has ever had in a sport. But, but asking that guy to all of a sudden transition to leave the, the top step of the dugout one day, put a suit on, and run a multi-million dollar um, business uh, was challenging. I mean, it, it, no question about it. It was incredibly challenging. I've said before, and I'll say it over the airwaves, there, there was some of Ray Tanner that got hired. There was some of Ray Tanner that got rewarded. I understand that. We're not Vulcans. We're, creat- we're not creatures of logic. There was a beholdenness that the university felt it had to Coach Tanner because of how successful he was in, 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 a, in an athletic program that had enjoyed a lot of success. I mean, the baseball program historically had been pretty good, but it had never been like that. I mean, it had never been the best baseball program in all of America. Name another athletic program at South Carolina. I guess women's basketball today, you could argue that. But you can wake up every morning saying, we're the best in America. Over the baseball program for about three or four years, you could argue was the best in America. So this does not diminish at all the job Ray Tanner did as head baseball coach at South Carolina. But this is a different animal. And this is hard to learn on the fly. I mean, you don't wake up one day and say, hey, I think I want to leave the top step of that dugout and become a successful AD. I mean, I think being in business prepares you, making business decisions, um, negotiating business deals, as Boudreaux said. Now, the good thing about Boudreaux and Madden, you know what you can do? You can turn it off and go to bed. Or hit reset. Yeah, I mean, you just turn it off and go to bed and wake up tomorrow and try it a little differently. Business is complicated. Small business in particular is very complicated. It's your neck on the line. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. We'll take a break here in just a couple of seconds. I do want to share a story on the other side. I hadn't told Rev this yet because I didn't. I mean, Rev's easily influenced and gets the big head and thinks he's all that. Uh-oh. And, um, <laughs> yeah, something happened to me yesterday. Really? Um, yeah, as I was getting gas. I was spending a small fortune getting gas and um, inquiring about 90 days, same as cash, and financing <laughs> Uh, the fill up. Right. Yeah. No doubt about like, that. I'm not pumping any more gas in my truck. I don't know if I've got that much money. We'll take a break. <laughs> Back in a minute. So yesterday we kind of trekked down the road of, what are you smiling about? Well, I I just was going to see where you're going with this, but I, I don't want you to move too far without telling the story you teased before the top of the hour. Okay. So I'm getting gas yesterday. Re- remember yesterday we summoned female calls. Talk about masculinity and toxic right. masculinity, and is the world uh, turning into a more feminine place? Is America becoming a more uh, feminine um, country? And it seemed like we we got a lot of uh, new first time callers. We that did. were females yesterday, and, and you you came in the room and you said, "Hey, man, a lot of women have called in today." Um, we have basically stigmatized conservative talk radio as a bunch of white guys, and to some degree, that's correct. But it's it's more diverse than you would imagine. Um, so I'm getting gas yesterday. And I'm on my, like, you know, 13th gallon, $300. And <laughs> right. I'm really starting to question, do I have this much money? Can I afford the 13th and 14th and 15th gallon? Can I fill my truck up without going to the bank and, and borrowing money? And there's a female behind me in an SUV. And, I mean, I'm getting gas. And, you know, and I'm too old to be checking somebody out and me getting checked out. But, it, you know, it's obvious that the person is kind of hanging around um, I finished filling my tank, $640, and she says, are you Kennard? And I said, yes. She said, I'll listen to you in the morning. And I said, thank you very much. She said, I'll listen to you this morning. Talking about, you know, the masculinity and femininity 
and all these other sorts of things. And it's encouraging to me to know that there are females out there um, that, that, that are motivated to know what's going on. I'm not saying we tell you what's going on, but we generate con- and concoct conversations is probably a better way to say this. <laughs> stumble we, into Yeah, <laughs> we stumble into conversations that we would feel, um, or we feel are somewhat interesting at times about the um, the issues of the day, the issues of the time. And uh, and Larry said something yesterday that I went back and kind of, um, I mean, I thought a lot about uh, 40%, excuse me, 68% of females under the age of 30 um, call themselves or identify as feminist. Let me say that again. 68% of women under the age of 30 identify as feminist. 40% of women also believe that feminism has become a branch of identity politics. I mean, th- those numbers kind of, um, they, they conflict with one another. 68% under the age of 30. Um, I don't know what the number is above the age of 30. It's not included in this article. And this is a National Review article about ladies, it's time to help our boys. And here's the, uh, the point we tried to articulate yesterday, and we had somewhat of a discussion on, and uh, you folks contributed a lot to the, to the conversation. We were talking about suicide amongst young men. I mean, in, in 5 to 11-year-olds, suicide is, I mean, that's hard to believe that somebody under the age of 11 what would, would get to a place where they felt that was, well, it's never a rational thought. It's always an irrational thought. But um, but we get to a, to a, I don't know, the dead end of a street, Rev. You know, the um, mm-hmm. the darkest of the dark holes that that was an option and that was your only way out. I mean, that's sad. It's devastating uh, to hear that. But, um, but, yeah, you know, 5 to 11 is about twice as many. Um, 15 to 19-year-olds about three times as many. 19 to 25-year-olds. I'm, I'm recounting this by memory. But, but anyway, a lot more young men are committing suicide than young women. And, and a lot of the research is showing that the reason, I mean, there, there are a lot of contributing factors here, but, um, but the men are have, young men are having a hard time fitting in and finding their standing. And the point I tried to make yesterday, and I think the majority of listeners you know, kind of agree with me here, uh, the majority of, of, of concern I have is that the natural hardwiring of a man you know, we're talking about masculinity yesterday. It's, it's you know, it, it's not all aggression and dominance. I mean, it's the, um, it's the provider mindset. It's the, uh, the enthusiastic competitor. I mean, there, there are certain things about masculinity that, that, that reflect survival of the fittest. But I think it's the way men are naturally wired, naturally um, created. I think testosterone is uniquely different than estrogen. I mean, my wife and I have this debate about providing and nurturing. You know, she's not as worried about the checkbook or the bank account as I am. I'm not worried about, you know, um, how upset my son's stomach is as she is. I mean, so we provide very unique and different parenting roles in regards to that. But but we've celebrated femininity. I mean, we, we admire those who, um, I mean, the, I don't, I, I, this sounds weird when I say it, the man who cries. I mean, when I was a kid, um, I don't know, Rev, you kind of taught grown men don't cry. I mean, we're, we're tougher than that. And I think that's a bit extreme, but, but I think masculinity, the, the notions of masculinity, the, ah, the mindset of masculinity. I mean, it doesn't have a mindset, but those who, the men who feel that modern woke culture and society, um, demean, disparage those who express themselves 
in masculine ways. Um, I, I do believe there is a, a cultural element to this that, that disallows young men from proceeding as they're hardwired. That they go to school and uh, femininity is celebrated. And, and once again, um, masculinity modern, is me, called toxic. It is. It's called toxic. And, you know, you can't bully and you can't uh, be aggressive and you can't try and dominate. Well, I don't think mask, you know, I don't know many young boys who try to bully and dominate and show aggression. I think they enjoy competition. I think the pursuit is something that is celebrated. But when you look at the statistics, and I'm not just talking about suicides. I mean, it's obvious there's an issue with, with, with young men committing suicide at a much higher rate than young women. I mean, if somebody doesn't believe that reflects masculinity, we talked about the, the father not being there. I mean, is, this, is the young boy's life uh, more adversely affected by a father not being there than a young girl's? I mean, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not a psychologist. I've never done any analytics on, you know, how many, how many girls without dads end up this way? How many boys without dads end up that way? We do know that about 40% of all children in America today are born out of wedlock. About 88% of the 40 live with their mother. So they're getting, uh, I mean, custody laws favor the mother. I mean, this is probably rest and residue of the feminist movement, but custody laws without question. I mean, Carl's talked a lot about this. You know, the, 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 the African-American female who plays the game with the custody laws that favor um, the mother. And, and I just think it's, it's, it, this is a very unique um, circumstance. It's not American politics. I mean, I don't know what the political world has done other than um, celebrate wokeness and political correctness. And, and along with that, masculinity has been categori- categorized as, uh, you know, the good cowboy wears the white hat, the bad cowboy wears the black hat. It's almost like femininity and feminism wear the white hat, masculinity and manliness wear the black hat, and you got to be aware of masculinity. Um, the, the point I'll try to make, and I'll ask this question, what is more dangerous to society today, feminism as identity politics or the natural state of masculinity, men naturally being what they were hardwired uh, to be? And I think we're discouraging men, and I think young men in particular, you want to fit in, Right. I mean, you don't want to be an, kind of an outcast. You don't want to be an outlier. You want to fit in. And you've got these tendencies that, that, that are masculine in nature. And culture is saying, got to watch those tendencies. That highly competitive um, natural spirit will turn into aggression. That wanting to run the business will turn into dominance. I mean, there's nothing good there. You know, the, these natural inclinations you have will end up being uh, something that causes you to commit a crime or, or, or take advantage of someone and it's lunacy. Um, 15 to 19-year-old boys commit suicide four times the rate of girls. 93% of those in prison are men. Hang on to that for a second. 93% of all prisoners are men. Um, more black young men between 10 and 20 are killed by homicide than by the next nine leading causes of death combined. I mean, these are random statistics. By the eighth grade, of girls are at least proficient in writing compared to 20% of boys. Um, Men earn about 38% of all college degrees. Women earn about 62% of all college degrees. Um, The median annual earnings of a man with a high school diploma have dropped 26% over the last 40 years. I mean, it's been hard. It's been much harder in modern woke society to be 
a male than a female. I understand, you know, Susan B. Anthony and voting rights. I understand that historically the Western world has been dominated by men. I mean, I've not, I've not been suppressed. I've not had to deal with any of these. I mean, I was born in 63. I don't remember having to deal very much with feminism. I don't remember uh, being told about toxic masculinity. But there's a generation of young boys now that are having to deal with a very different world than you or I had to deal with, Reb. And we must address this as very serious. Um, when, when I was a kid, when I was a young boy in school, um, I don't remember anybody in my circle whose parents were divorced. I mean, I'm thinking about it. Maybe one or two as I got older, but in my very young days, um, the mom and dad were at home. And maybe there was a divorce, but we didn't know about it. You know, it was not like um, you never saw John or Jim or Joe's dad. I mean, John or Jim's, uh, Joe's dad was always there. And we had um, scuffles in the schoolyard. We had highly and hotly contested athletic events. And it was kind of celebrated. And I think this woke modern um, feminism that has become um, kind of a, um, an iteration of identity politics has done grave damage to the plot of young men, combine that with the deindustrialization. How many, how many, 87% of all factory workers in the Rust Belt were men. So when the Rust Belt was deindustrialized uh, via NAFTA and some foreign trade policies, and maybe some of this is inevitable. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that NAFTA is the reason that every manufacturing job left the Rust Belt that left the Rust Belt. I would imagine some of this was inevitable technology and automation and robotics and a global economy and a more acceptance of a global economy. I'll, I'll, I'll argue that it's all not that, but, but NAFTA and trade policy and globalism as an ideology had a lot to do with that. And who paid the big price? Men. I mean, men paid a much uh, bigger price in globalization and deindustrialization than women did. So if 93% of all men or uh, 93% of all prisoners in America are men, and about 85 or so percent of all jobs lost in manufacturing and, and in industry in the Rust Belt were men, um, th then it's a different era. It's a different age. It's more complicated for boys today. And, um, and, and when, 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 when the lady came up to me yesterday, and here's why it led me down this road. I'm getting gas. There's this female behind me, and she says, you know, I listen to your show. I appreciate your show. We enjoy your show. That meant a lot to me. Because I'm a dude, and I don't know how women think. And and it's been a long time since I've been out there. I've been married 30, uh, damn, 35 years? Wow. I've been married about 33. She's been married 35. <laughs> um, but, but it, you know, I, I make these comments, and I offer these opinions. And, and sometimes i got to be careful about not understanding how many of you women are feminist. What does femininity mean? I mean, I, I have no problem with femininity. I treat femininity as I do masculinity. I mean, it's woman in their natural state. It's man in his, in his natural state. But these feminists who have turned this modern feminism into a political ideology that is basically rooted in attacking masculinity, trying to convince everybody that there is no masculinity, it's all toxic masculinity. And the reason, the reason that, that we must address this issue is to stop boys from becoming aggressive and dominant young men. But what we're doing, Rev, is we're allowing them to believe it's okay to not want to compete, to not want to try harder, to not want to be um, as as good a wage earner as you possibly can. Um, and then the breakdown of the family obviously contributes enormously to this. 
The point I'm trying to make, it is unbelievably different today to be a young boy than it was when I was indeed a young boy. Let's go to the phone. Mark in Branchville listening to WTQS this morning. Hey, Mark. Hey, good morning, guys, and thank you all for what you all always do. And, you know, again, I'm about you. I'm a little younger than you, but we all came the same way playing Little League and, and, you know, everything and had friends and teams. But you know what? The problem, I think, a lot of times in our society is, you know, everybody does not deserve a trophy. Um, you know, we all – Everybody can't be the MVP, but we all know who that guy is. Well, you know, and I think that's what's happened in the last – when my girls have come along, you know, everybody got a little trophy. Everybody got a trophy. Well, you know, I mean, it, it, that's just huge telling you that you you okay, you can be mediocre, and you still can get the same trophy that the good guys got. And not that somebody's better, but everybody's better than someone else. And, you know, I, who do you want, you know, doing brain surgery on? You know, jock, or you want a guy, a little nerdy guy in the corner has been reading books all his life. He probably knows a lot more about what, you know, with, with brain surgery than the jock does. But um, I just think that that's one of our main problems with our whole society today. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. I don't disagree. I can go to the forward punt, pass, and kick competitions that I competed in as a kid. Um, I could punt good. I could throw good. But I couldn't kick worth a me- – I mean, I just couldn't off the tee. But you had the cumulative. You, you pass it, you punt it, and you kick it. You had a gold trophy. Believe it or not, you had a silver trophy. Somebody finished second. You had a bronze trophy. Someone finished third. If you had seven contestants in that age group, four people didn't get a trophy. As we say in Pamplico, sometimes it just bees like that. And that's the way it bees in Pamplico. Try harder next when you had the Yeah, but I mean, I can remember um, as a seven-year-old getting a silver trophy, as an eight-year-old getting a bronze trophy. I made my mind up as a nine-year-old, I'm getting a gold trophy. I'm going to learn to kick off of a tee. You know what I did? I learned to kick off of a tee, and I got a gold trophy. That there was a sense of accomplishment there. Nobody made me believe that life was unfair and I was owed anything. You, you mean to tell me there are two people better at this than you are? That can't be the case. We can't let you go to bed at night believing that there are two people better than you are. That may be devastating. It's more devastating to let me go to bed not believing that I must try harder to beat the guy that won the silver trophy and the guy that won the gold trophy. And my frustration, I could out-throw and out-punt both of them, but they could just kill it kicking, and I was not good at all at that. But but nobody, I mean, my father didn't say, hey, let's go to the trophy shop and I'll find a gold trophy and everything will be okay. No, the, the masculine thing for me to do, the natural thing for me to do was was allow me to ponder losing and the consequences of not being as good as the other two. And the caller makes a very valid point here. And I think masculinity is a celebration of the competitiveness it takes to win in life. And, and you know, and this really goes to the women who are listening. You know, I believe that as a man. But it's interesting for me to hear what women believe. I believe this, Rev. I don't know this because I'm not a female. I believe that women want a man willing to compete, a man willing to try hard, a man willing to say, nobody owes me anything. I mean, it's, it's my job to get out and make my way. I am the patriarch of this family. It's my responsibility to make this family ends up in a better place than it starts. I think women embrace, I think women are dying to have more men like that. Um, you know, we're living here now, but we're not living here long because I'm going to compete in the job market. I'm going to get a better job. I'm going to make more money. I'm going to win that competition and we're going to leave here. Not about materialistic things. I'm not arguing in the name of materialism, but I think men are hardwired to do that. 
And I think what we're trying to do is unwire the hard wiring, the, the natural wiring, the, the, the God wiring of, of man into something uniquely different than that. Um, and all of a sudden, the man says, hey, we're living on the dead end of this street, but we really don't deserve it. There's nothing I can do about it. I mean, it's the damn world. The odds are stacked against me. You know, I get the bronze trophy. Somebody else always get the silver and gold trophy. But, but I'm not going to try any harder because the world kind of owes me a little better shake than what I've received. And we got to stop that. I mean, we got to stop that. And men have to address that. And I'll tell you, Reb, um, the 40% of kids born out of wedlock and the 80-some-odd percent of those kids being uh, raised by their mother, nobody's telling that little boy. Life's a competition, son. I mean, life gets tough at times. And you got to dig a little deeper. If you get the bronze trophy, it's probably what you deserved. And the only way to get the silver is try a little harder. And the only way to get the goal is try a little harder than that. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. So, like, when or what can you can you blame for this? I mean, when, when did this happen? When, when did things change and masculinity became toxic or bad? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can think, you identify? Well, I mean, you and I've talked a lot about these, uh, these events that led to certain other events. I mean, I've argued that the, the day Wall Street was bailed out by the federal government was a day that someone like Donald Trump was going to be elected president. When it comes to uh, toxic masculinity and when we decided uh, masculinity bad, femininity good, I don't know. I mean, I, re- I don't know the settings of which these sorts of things happen. Uh, was it academic? Was it institutions? Uh, you know, the, what, did the government all of a sudden declare war on masculinity? Um, the mainstream media, obviously. Um, I mean, I've read more and more and more. Uh, the, the American Psychological Association actually did a deep dive in this. Hold on one second. I wanna, um, uh, yeah, the, the American Psych- uh, Psychological Association uh, did its first ever guideline or issued its first ever guideline uh, for practice with men and boys. This was in 2020, a couple of years ago. But um, I don't know, Rev. I mean, you're asking a question about when did masculinity become toxic? I don't think masculinity is toxic, but the narrative is. And and we're celebrating femininity in a way. And modern feminism has become um, a branch of identity politics. No question about that. Um, I understand a woman being a feminist. I mean, I really do. I understand a woman uh, being a feminist. Um, I'm a masculinist. I mean, you know, it's my natural wiring. I mean, it's just the way I'm wired. I understand a woman who defends her right to be feminine. A woman should defend her right to be feminine. That's her in her natural state. I'm not saying a woman can't run a Fortune 5 in a company, nor am I saying a man can't rock a a baby to sleep. Of course we can. I mean, shame on us if we don't believe we can do both. But we have a natural inclination to pursue success. And by that, I mean um, to to welcome competition. And I know that the punt, pass, and kick trophy may be a silly illustration, but when I got the bronze trophy as a, as a seven- or eight-year-old kid, I didn't feel like anybody owed me anything. I didn't feel like I'd failed miserably. I wanted that gold trophy. And the only thing I knew to win that gold trophy was figure out a way to win. So what did I do? I started kicking more, and I learned how to kick better. And, and the next thing you know, it took me a couple of years, but the next thing you know, I won the gold trophy. And, and th- there was a euphoric rush, I can remember. I'm mean, I'm talking about it today. The forward punt, pass, and kick. I went to Charlotte in 19, that would have been 73 maybe as a 10-year-old, and competed in the, the, the Southeast Regional punt, pass, and kick. It still has an impact on you. Sure remember. it does. But I mean, I was, raised, favorably too, I was raised by a man who today would probably be incarcerated for toxic masculinity. 
I mean, the world owed me nothing. I mean, it's up to you to go out and get it. I mean, it's there. Uh, are they going to stop giving away gold trophies? I mean, is there a rule that says someone named Ken can't win a gold trophy? No, sir. Well, then go win a gold trophy. Learn to kick better. I mean, is that toxic masculinity? No. That's that's allowing me to be um, masculine in figuring out a way to win. Let's go to the phone. Chad in Coward. Hey, Chad, you're on the air. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey, I Chad. Hope, uh, hope your pollen gauges didn't get too full last night. I know uh, mine got up there pretty good, but... Nonetheless, you've been battling this sinus mess, so excuse me if I start coughing or something. But You're good. Uh, Ken, actually, you're spot on with the punt, pass, and kick competition. You are spot on with that analogy. Uh, my brother's been a coach for over 30 years now in the high, at high school level and um, back home in Louisiana, and he's still very much, a, you know, pro – uh, you you do you do what you're supposed to do to make the team, or you don't make the team. You know, and it and and so that's a spot on analogy. And I, I just want to say I believe the reason the government's even getting involved in this whole masculinity femininity thing is because it reminds them of the, one of the very things they hate, which is capitalism. Capitalism is right there. You know, to the winner goes the spoils, and 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 they hate that. And I think. That this just reminds them of one of the very things they hate in this great nation is is capitalism. Because again, it, it's it, they want everybody to have a participation trophy and get a slice of the pie. Whereas I'm still a fairly firm believer in yeah. Granted, some people don't have the opportunities that others may have afforded them. And yeah, give them a little nudge, but don't give them something they didn't earn. But nonetheless. I believe that's why the government's even making this an issue now is because it reminds them of something that, that they're dealing with on a daily basis right now, and it's something they hate. I'll leave you with that. You guys have a great day. Thank you, Chad. I mean, certain words come to mind. When you look at the Western world, traditionally viewed, I mean, masculinity has been traditionally viewed in the Western world um, in what sort of way? I mean, it corresponds with strength, right? It corresponds with courage, uh, independence, leadership assertiveness. Now, now, it can go to dominance and aggression. And that's where you got to be careful. I mean, you got, you got to be real careful about, you know, the, the tipping point where it leads off to something more troubling. What is the biggest threat to government domination, government control, government telling everybody what to do, when to do it, how to do it, where to do it? I mean, the, the, if you're in government, the last thing you want is a, is a nation full of strong, courageous, independent people with certain leadership skills who aren't afraid to assert, assert themselves. That's, that's fairly well said. If you are a congressman or a senator or a liberal and you believe that government needs to kind of control the people, government's best equipped to lead people down the roads they need to be led down, the last thing you want is strong, courageous, independent men with leadership skills who aren't afraid, who aren't afraid to be assertive. That's the most dangerous thing imaginable to someone who believes government should be in charge of all the, um, so, so yeah, I mean, maybe there you, that, that's kind of it. We're answering our own question as we're discussing it. Masculinity is a threat to a bigger and stronger government, a more powerful government, a more consuming government, a more assertive government. Um, so if we can condition the people to conform, if masculinity is deemed uh, aggressive and dominant and dangerous instead of reflecting strength and courage and independence and leadership and assertiveness, 
then that's half the battle. Convince the people. Convince the men, the young boys. Let's convince them that they are more dangerous than they can imagine when they exhibit some of these natural masculine traits and tendencies. Let's go to the phone. Here is Hillary in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, Hillary. Hey there. Um, I'm a mother of six, uh, married, uh, raised by parents who were born in 57, 56. And I think the breakdown started right about then with those parents who the mother was the breadwinner. Not that the father was a bad father. I didn't take care of his family, but the mother was making more than the father. And those mothers, these daughters, that they were better than the fathers. And that got something in their head that just made something different. And it's really affected my generation. I'm 35, and I really feel like that generation really hurt my generation into making men less than. And thank you for having me out today. Thank you very much, Hillary. Appreciate that. Um, and that goes back to the deindustrialization. When automation and roboticing technology became, be- I don't know, began becoming the norm in manufacturing and industry, um, who was who was damaged? I mean, who was harmed? Who was, um, I mean, you got a good job at the plant, right? I mean, the majority of those good jobs at the plant were, were, were for men. I mean, the men worked 80-some-odd percent of the jobs lost during globalism. And I'm talking about since NAFTA, about 85 or 6 percent of those jobs. I've seen a report as low as 83. I've seen another report as high as 88. But somewhere around 85 percent of the jobs lost in the manufacturing and industrial sector during NAFTA or after NAFTA were men. So all of a sudden, men, see, and I think we get into deep psychological issues here. I think men begin um, down the road of an inferiority complex. I was able to go to work at the plant, and I was able to, you know, rise through the ranks of employees. I'm the floor sweeper, and then I'm the on the assembly line, and I got a better job on the assembly line. Next thing you know, I'm the night supervisor. Uh, I do that for five or six or seven years, and then I get the job of day supervisor because I don't like working at night. I've earned that. I mean, I've earned the right. I made 40 grand a year. Then I made 50 grand. Then I made 60 and, and 70 and 80. And all of a sudden, that job walks out of the door. That's not a number on a sheet of paper. That's not a job report data analytic. That's a way of life that walks out of the door. And when our, when our government agreed to go down the road of globalism, and once again, I'll accept some of this as inevitable. I mean, I don't think the government intentionally put men on the street, but it did. And a man who was able to provide a certain quality of life for his family. I mean, there was great pride in that, Rev. He was not afraid to wake up every morning and compete in the marketplace, compete in the job market. And all of a sudden, the job market walks away. There's a padlock on the chain of the gate at the plant that employed 600 people, 575 of which were men. Men making seventy-five dollars or $80,000 a year. Men able to put their kids in a car and carry them on vacation. All of a sudden, that man doesn't have a job, and he's on unemployment, and he gets somewhat, somewhat depressed. Next thing you know, he takes a pain kill, a pain medicine, and another pain medicine. I mean, that, this is the vicious cycle. I mean, look at, look at the towns where we had the most rampant opioid abuse. You know where they were? The towns where the plants closed. Look at the percentage of men that were hooked on opiates in comparison to the percentage of women. Men just didn't lose a job. They lost the, that, that masculinity 
that they were so proud of in being able to provide for those families. That's what J.D. Vance wrote about in Hillbilly Elegy. That's what J.D. Vance is running on in the Senate seat in Ohio. So so when you say, you know, um, America lost three and a half million uh, industrial and manufacturing jobs uh, post-NAFTA, you're basically saying America put three and a half million men in a more compromised place, and it was hard to win. I mean, if you're a, if you're a, a blue-collar worker in the manufacturing sector, and the manufacturing sector has exported places abroad, and the government's complicit in allowing corporate America tax loopholes and all other sorts of advantages, sheltering uh, profit, that, that's not just a job. That, that there, there's a certain identity that, that you're defined by in how you do that job. And the human carnage has been unbelievably disruptive to American politics. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville is next. Hi, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, when I went to school back in the the 50s, we had recess, and we had kickball and dodgeball. We ran around like a bunch of idiots and ran all of our aggressions out and sat in the classroom and, and learned. But all of a sudden, in the late 70s, everybody, everything changed. The, the feminists had to prove they didn't need a man. <clears throat> and this all went through the education system because people had to be taught this. Now, the little, so they, you can't get hurt by dodgeball, so they stopped that. Can't have kickball because you might fall down. You might get dirty. Um, so they started giving all the little boys Ridlin and all these AVH drugs that alter their mind and then they wonder why they're committing suicide. I mean, education is at the base of all of this because you have to prepare a people for what's coming down the pike. The, for example, the, the, the amendment that did away with alcohol, that didn't just come up and, and be passed by the American people. That started back in the late 1800s in the schools, they were teaching the kids that alcohol was bad, alcohol was bad, alcohol was bad. And then whenever it came time, 30 years later, the amendment to get rid of alcohol went right through. And, you know, everybody was cool with it until they weren't. So we're, we're letting the education system, and people are starting to wake up now, but you got to stay on top of all of this because the only way a, a, a government can keep control of its people is keep it docile. In order to keep it docile, you got to have it under control. And through the education system and all these other control mechanisms, just like wear the mask, that's how you keep people under control. And we need to wake up and, and say, no, we have control. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. A lack of masculinity. I was reading some of the clinical definitions and some of these um, psychology or psych, uh, some, of these, some of these woke think tanks and the way they articulate um, masculinity. You ready? Heterosexism. A sincere belief in heterosexism. <laughs> Self-sufficient okay. attitudes and a lack of emotional sensitivity. I think men are emotionally sensitive. Unbelievably emotionally sensitive. Uh, take a break. Back in a minute. 
843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Next caller is Breeze. Hey, Breeze. Hey, what's up, guys? Let me tell you guys out there something to raise the boys. If you're counting on the schools, if you're counting on the government, or anyone else to make make your boy into a man, then you know you've already lost that battle, son. But anyway, um, I don't. I, I guess you may have seen the speech that Joe Biden made uh, yesterday. But I got another question: eighty-one million people supposedly voted for Joe Biden. How many Build Back Better hats have you seen? I wonder if any of the professors have a Build Back Better hat than the old one. <laughs> have you seen any kid? I don't think I've seen a Build Back Better hat. <laughs> I haven't seen one. I mean, maybe I've seen a Build Back. Maybe you know. So, but anyway, in Biden's speech yesterday, you could pull it up on WhiteHouse.gov. He used the term. He started out. He said times are shifting to a. New World Order. He goes, the liberal, he said, our country adopted adopted a liberal world order, and that's what has saved us. Now, that goes back to the Great Reset. In fact, you'll see Bill Back Better mentioned, I think it was first mentioned in a climate-type thing at the U.N. But I would be curious to know what the professor's ideas on the Great Reset, you know, where... If you aren't woke enough, you can't get a loan from a bank. And how basically, uh, well, if you listen to a speech, you could pretty much argue that it's treason. But, I mean, I'm sure they won't see it that way. But I would be curious to hear what they say about it. Did you get a chance to look at either of that kid? I did. I listened to it. And he actually surprised me when he said himself the New World Order. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I've always felt they believed in things like I mean, I'm talking about the real liberal political leadership. I just didn't think yeah. they'd verbalize it, but he did. That amazed me. That amazed me. So, I mean, now the cat is out of the bag. And, you know, kid, I'm a humble man. But, damn it, I was right again, brother. This, <laughs> shit, excuse me, this, this stuff here, man, has been planned all along. We're being played for a bunch of damn fools. You know, if Putin was best friends with Trump, why didn't he attack when Trump was president into the Ukraine instead of waiting until the line of Delaware was there? You know, and we're so concerned about human lives. How come we haven't saved the millions of people dying in Africa? And we're so concerned about the Ukrainian border. Why aren't we concerned about our own border? I mean, all of this stuff is a big load of crap, and people need to wake up and realize it's not incompetence. It is not incompetence. It is competence. And if you believe that Joe Biden is competent and the Democrat parties are competent, by that very nature, you have to admit that everything that is happening from high gas prices to inflation to the war in Ukraine was done on purpose. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it, my man. Uh, I didn't, I mean, it caught me off guard. I went back and read it or or listened to it, and it is on whitehouse.gov, but he actually says, I mean, he verbalizes in the first person, the new world order, um, that's a bit odd. Now, now the mainstream media says a bunch of conspiracy theorists will turn this into something that it's really not. Let's go to the phone real Jamie quick before we take our break. is our next caller. Hey, Jimmy. Good morning, fellas. Ken, uh, I think I verbalized on your show before. Um, I think the war on, on men started uh, inadvertently with um, um, the bunker show. Um, 
Uh, what's the name of it? Um, all in the family. All in the family and Archie Bunker. All in the family. Mm. All in the family. Um, you know, it made made Archie look out. You know, made him look to be the fool of the family. And before that, you know, the father of the family was always you know the hero of the family and the leader. And I think it inadvertently started what we saw thereafter. And uh, and I also think the. Um, meaning of masculinity and feminine feminism have have reversed each other um i i just that's that's where i thought it that's where i think it uh, started and i wanted to say that again um but ken i also wanted to say we'll always have paris <laughs> thank you jam appreciate that my man uh yeah lamont paris is now the basketball coach at the university of south carolina and clemson fans are taking a little joy in the struggle of the recent search. <laughs> Back in a minute. Our two professors are in the studio. Dr. Coppin does not have a Build Back Better cap on. I will announce that to the public. Um, <laughs> but before we do that, before we got our professors, let's go to the phone. Someone held on during the break. Steve in Florence. Hi, Steve. Good yeah, morning, guys. Yeah, I needed that bronze trophy in karate to get that gold three years later. But a lot of the masculinity, our foods have a lot to do with that, too. You take soy in consideration of how much estrogen it puts into your body. It's almost like as a young man, you need to take a testosterone booster just to balance it all out. And on Biden, really quick, I think in one of his speeches after he talked to Zelensky, I think after he talked to Congress, he said something, and it kind of went completely unnoticed. And I'm just kind of paraphrasing because I can't quite remember it. But he said it was like hard to do with this democratic government. And, like, everybody's kind of blew past that. Thank you, Steve. Well, th thank you. Appreciate that. I could not believe it. And, and I'll start this with Dr. Kaufman. Um, good morning, sir. How are you? Fine. How are you? Good morning, Dr. Bolt. How are you? Um, both are with us today. So um, what is the, the new world order? I mean, when Biden says it, and I mean, it's not some conservative guy saying it any longer. It's not um, somebody at QAnon saying it any longer. I mean, the president of the United States says um, the new world order. Well, what do you perceive that to well, be? Well, if you take look at it in the context, I think he's talking about a Pax Americana. Okay. I think he's talking about exactly what people talked about after the Cold War ended, that we're trying to promote a world based upon uh, democracy, on capitalism, on, on good old-fashioned American values, and that by spreading this kind of world order, if you will, this democratic capitalist system, that you'll have world peace. But but shouldn't we reinforce those values at home before we try to export those values? I mean, there, there would be a counter conversation. I would argue that he is pushing for a more totalitarian government run economy. I mean, I, I don't go down the road of, of communism. I do think there are socialist tendencies to the modern uh, Democrat Party. But but in, in other words, I guess the point I'm trying to make, Dr. Kaufman, is it seems to me that America historically has celebrated the free markets and, and liberties and freedoms. Europe has kind of sort of done that so he's making an agreement with europe we'll kind of meet somewhere in the middle you know we're not asking you to come as far as we are on on celebrating liberties and freedoms and, and democracy so so we'll we'll take some of what you guys um how, how you guys govern yourselves intertwine that with how we govern ourselves and out of that comes um a, a less america a more european america is that a fair criticism well i mean we've we've this debate we could talk about has been going on for for generations I mean, we can go all the way back, if you'd like, to the new to the Great Depression and the New Deal. 
where as far as Franklin Roosevelt— But that was not an international agreement. I mean, you know, it was not a globalist agreement. But it ties in with this this broader idea. I mean, you had those individuals on the conservative side who said, oh, what Roosevelt is doing is he's leading America down the path towards socialism and communism. But he kind of did. But no, but he was was protecting capitalism. He was trying to protect capitalism— Against a against what what he saw was happening in the world. I mean, during the Great Depression, many Americans, much of the capitalist world, is suffering. The communist Soviet Union was doing very very well at that time, and Roosevelt was greatly fearful that we would see a growth of communism here. In fact, in the 1930s, the U.S. Communist Party increases in size. So to him, this is an effort to fight that trend to protect capitalism, and so I, I don't see him in any way diverging from the Wilsonian idea, back to Woodrow Wilson, of a democratic capitalist system. I think President Biden should probably fire the speechwriter who put the word <laughs> New World Order in there, or if he went off prompter, uh, heaven help him. It's, 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 a, it's, it's kind of poking the bear, and he just it was if somebody wasn't thinking. And Biden said it in the context of the resurgence of America, resurgence of NATO, that this is where we are now. We're supporting liberal democracies, liberal the small L, representative, uh, freedom of choice, the, the old Truman Doctrine, if you will, the right of self-determination, uh, what the Ukrainians are, are standing up for and what the Soviet or the former Soviet Union is trying to impose across the rest of the world. So again, it was just a poor, poor choice of words. They, they, they should have known it at the White House. I mean, this is the gang that can't shoot straight. Again, when you say something like that, the New World Order, it's throwing blood in the water. It's going to antagonize all of your critics. So uh, he wasn't, again, he wasn't trying to poke the bear, but again, it was just something he could have could have phrased better. I want to stay with you, and I'll sure. go back to Dr. Coppin in a second. You, Dr. Coppin expressed a second ago, communism was doing just fine. What, what, what When is communism doing just fine? <laughs> no, but he, he is exactly right. I mean, President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, was terrified that things had gotten so bad here in the United States of America that yes, lots of Americans were entertaining and were sympathetic towards communist viewpoints at this time. And President Roosevelt was afraid that if we don't do something right now to kind of see, this is, for many Americans, a viable alternative. And so it was said that in FDR's first hundred days uh, that American capitalism was saved. Now, certainly to do this, Roosevelt shifted and moved the country to the left. Uh, there, there were some socialist tendencies if you will, and those tendencies, once the toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't put it back in. Again, any president who's come, even Dwight Eisenhower, the first Republican, said, we we can't repeal the New Deal. Uh, we are stuck with it. And then, of course, Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson sort of augmented it. So again, yes, it was uh, sort of a, a, a series of steps. But again, we are, we are still living in Franklin Roosevelt's America, and these ideals, these programs... Uh, before the New Deal, the question was, is the the New Deal or is the government going to get involved in the economy? After Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, we've settled that question. It's no longer an if, but now the question is how, in what manner? Well, and the point I'd make, Dr. Coppin, is, and many callers make this point as well, and many conservative um, thought leaders believe that a lot of this is intentional. I mean, the damaging of capitalism, the manipulation of capitalism, the distortion of capitalism is to drive us closer to a government-run economy, a government-orchestrated education system, um, less of the, the private sector, more of the public sector, that, that when gas prices are $4.50 a gallon or $5 a gallon and the cost of education um, increases exponentially, this is very intentional. This is not incompetence. This is the 
this is the uh, this is the liberal left in action trying to distort so much of the marketplace that socialism is a uh, kind of a default point. But that takes out so many things. I mean, but do you one, give any legitimacy to that point? I can understand where the point of view is coming from. I mean, I personally think that's what the the intent of the liberals well, are. And I, I see, I disagree with that. Okay, fair um, enough. But I can see why people believe that way. I mean, if you're going to the gas station and one week it's two eighty nine a gallon, and the next week it's three ninety nine a gallon, you're, you're immediately going to say something isn't right here. And and of course, when when things when prices go up, when the economy you feel like is not going the right direction, it's going to be the president in power who's to blame. And often in this case, because it's a Democrat, you're going to say, aha, Democrats are, are, are up to something here. But that ignores the broader market forces that are taking place here. I mean, we're going into a, a post-COVID period. We're seeing an increase in demand for gasoline worldwide. Uh, we're not seeing production keeping up with demand. And so that's going to play a part in gas prices. But when you talk about this broader issue of the market and, and the, the question then becomes, are you talking about a laissez-faire system here? Because when we had a laissez-faire system, there was a reaction to that, including from Republicans. Now, this, of course, would be the progressive Republicans we're talking about, but from Republicans who said the problem with the laissez-faire system is that it was detrimental in many ways to Americans, that you it allowed, allowed for monopolization, it allowed for higher prices, it allowed for child labor, um, and that that was 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 harmful to America that you had to have some form of government regulation if we're going to protect the American consumer. Do you think the price of gas today is a national security issue? I think it does affect us, yes, in terms of of um being able to to provide for for the American people. Uh and certainly we've talked we've seen that happen in the past. Dwight Eisenhower talked about in the 1950s about how America's reliance on foreign foreign sources of oil was a national security issue. We had to move more toward independence when it came toward to gasoline. So, so yeah, I think it is a national security issue. Um, but we have to be cautious in assigning, where the, assigning blame because there are much bigger forces taking place here. Should we explore every opportunity to be energy independent, Dr. Bolt? Oh, absolutely. No, again, you just, you can't, we can't go on. Four dollars, five dollars at the pump. I mean, this is this is this is just a terrible deal that the Democratic Party has made. And this is Biden came into office. We didn't expect him to be to get in bed with the radical fringe environmental element. And this is this is the decision he's made. Perhaps he sees political benefits from it, but again, something something needs to be done. We just we we have the resources, we have the the availability to do it. You can't. You can't People just can't go on paying four or five dollars at the pump with no signs of it coming down anytime soon. As you said before, it's affecting other segments of the economy, right? It's a it's a trickle down effect. Other businesses, people aren't going out to restaurants. Again, what's left of the mom and pop economy is now going to is going to suffer. So yes, everything, every option should be on the table. I want to stay with you. Wait a second, Dr. Yeah, Cummins. I'll get back to you. That. I'll stay with you, Dr. Bolt. Do you think any sure. of that's intentional? I like the I I, I hope not. Again, I'm not willing to go down that rabbit hole yet. But yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. But, but you understand reasonable, competent people who do believe well, again, that I'm, there's intent here. And, I, and I've, I'm very fortunate. I've The economy has worked out well for me. I've been in the right spot. I've caught a few breaks. A lot of my friends in Buffalo, no guys in Tennessee, people here in South Carolina who I understand why they're, why they're up and why they would say that, yes, the, the deck is stacked 
against me. And so again, I, from my personal standpoint, I've been very, very lucky. I've, I've caught a couple of breaks, been in the right spot at the right time. But again, for those individuals who've worked just as hard as I have, and then just for whatever reason, weren't in the right spot at the right time, I, I can certainly see how they would say that. See, I, I, I want to take issue. I'm, I'm sorry, You're I, fine. I have to agree, disagree with you here. Mm. Two issues here. Two mm. issues here. Number one is how many governors along the in these Gulf Coast states are willing to allow for offshore offshore drilling off their coasts. Many of them are Republicans. But second of all, there are some nine thousand oil and gas leases in this country that are unused. Why are they unused? Well, they're unused in large part because the oil and gas companies have decided that rather than put money into Using those leases, they'd rather give that money back to the stockholders. So if you're going to go ahead and blame Biden for that, uh, that's wrong. Blame the oil and gas companies. <laughs> They're the ones who, who could have used those leases to increase production. Now, there's other things we can throw in the mix as well, such as supply issues, um, labor issues. But those 9,000 oil and gas leases, why aren't they being taken advantage well, a of? A lot of those are not deemed to be profitable. I mean, there's a there's an, a scale of economies here, and, and they have leases, and they've investigated the leases. Um, they don't believe the leases would produce the revenue necessary to make the investment. The return on investment would not be um, – uh, let's say Exxon for an example. Say Exxon has 1,000 leases on 1,000 pieces of property. They've evaluated that of the 1,000 leases they have to explore and do all the um, – the necessary work to find out what sort of um, capacity or what sort of production that land could have um, that they've decided it's just not worth a million dollar or two or three or four or five million dollar investment in a well because they won't pump but so much so much oil i, I want to stay here for a second this is a very interesting conversation do you believe it's a reasonable ambition to be completely independent of fossil fuels by the year 2035 as joe biden says I think it's it's an ambition. I don't think it's it's possible. I think we have to be realistic here. I mean, right now, about 17 percent of our energy is provided by renewables. But to try to make ourselves totally energy independent uh, of fossil fuels by 2035, I think that that would require such a radical change in the way our economy is in the way we are culturally. I just don't see that happening. Is the new Green Deal radical? Radical in terms of its ambitiousness, I think it's it's a it's a great idea in terms of moving toward energy independence and toward renewables. Um, but I think that what it's calling for in such a short period of time and the money involved, I think it, it, it's 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 asking for far too much. You call it ambitious, I call it detached from reality. <laughs> There's a kind of a that's semantics, uh-huh. but I think one is um kind of similar to the other. I'm um, Dr. Bolt. No, I'm just no, not not a fan of it. And again, this is not what we were sold uh, when Biden was campaigning. He was this moderate centrist, and I guess he's he sees the politics, but he's it's it's the younger Americans who are very very passionate about these environmental issues. I right, maybe he's maybe he's playing the long game. Maybe he's playing 3D chess. But these individuals usually don't come out and vote on election time, and yet he's moved very very far to the left on the environmental issues. What's it going to get him this this November? His party's going to be the minority in both the House and the Senate. Biden appears to be in no state to be playing 4D chess. I'll just leave it. I'll just leave it at that. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. You guys can listen on the uh, on the headset. We have Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Hey, uh, you guys, I, both of y'all are educated enough to know that y'all are confusing or conflating proximate cause with ultimate cause. I mean, 
if uh, you got a boat that's losing buoyancy and, and you're uh, you say, well, we've got to get bigger bailers and we got to put more pontoons on the boat, but uh, that that's a that that's proximate cause, increased buoyancy. But if the ultimate cause is fix the hole in the bottom of the boat, and Biden Biden put a hole in the bottom of the boat when he discontinued that pipeline and shut down all of the new leases and everything. In that kind of environment, if I was going to invest millions and millions of my money and my friend's money, my partner's money, I would be very nervous about a man like that. And he has a tendency, he has a reverse Midas touch. Everything he touches, he, it just goes sideways on him. And But I, I, I don't appreciate y'all uh, confusing proximate with ultimate cause because he obviously turned off the oil. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. I'll let both of you respond. Well, two issues here. Uh, actually, a few issues. But one is what he's talking about is the problem that the Democrats are going to face. And that is they're not going to be looking at what are the causes of all of this. What they're going to be looking at is what's the outcome. And if the outcome is I'm still paying three ninety nine for gasoline, I can't go to my go to the restaurant like I wanted to. Um, it, it's it's affecting my bottom line. I'm having to choose between how much I feed my children and how much I spend on gasoline then it's not going to have an – it's going to hurt the Democrats. Clearly, it's going to hurt the Democrats. The Democrats are already in trouble. This is only going to hurt them more. Um, to get to the deeper issues uh, with regard, for instance, to the leases, uh, environmentalists, in fact, have been attacking Joe Biden for increasing the number of leases he's willing to offer to these oil and gas companies so they can begin drilling. Uh, so it's the decision of the oil and gas companies not to drill. Uh, they want to – now, you've talked about profits being part of the issue here, but that doesn't mean there aren't – leases that are available that could be profitable, but they're just giving the money to the shareholders. And as for the pipeline, I mean, the pipeline would not even be open until 2023 to begin with. Um, and it, at maximum potential, it would it would provide about 830,000 barrels of oil a day to a country that uses between 18 and 20 million barrels of oil a day. And given that oil prices, again, are based upon market value, it would not have an appreciable impact upon gas prices. But, but are you arguing that the Biden administration is is not thwarting the pursuit of fossil fuel generated energy? Well, again, I mean, we. I mean, he, he said he, that he said in his debate that it was his intent to to shut down the oil companies and become zero carbon emitting by twenty thirty five. And again, that was a play to the progressive wing of the but, party. But you would agree that that's his. I mean, that he said that in a in a political debate. And, and again, I. He's playing the progressive wing, and you've got to be careful, I think, sometimes what you say. It reminds me of when, when uh, Hillary Clinton talked about, yeah, uh, the, the coal mines are going to get shut down. He, he's playing to a certain, a certain demographic. I think Dr. Bolt is absolutely right in terms of are those individuals actually going to come out and vote. He's trying to appeal to them. Um, but I think he's being unrealistic if he says that by 2035 we're going to be able to shut all this down. It, it's not going to happen. Okay, let's stay there. I'll, let's take a break. We've got a call. We'll get to the call to the other side. Got to pay some bills. These guys can hang around another segment. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. College professors, Dr. Scott Kaufman, history chair, Francis Marion University. Dr. Will Bolt, history professor at Francis Marion University with a subspecialty. And Andrew Jackson. Thank you. Right? Absolutely. What would Andrew Jackson think of President Biden's liberal energy policies <laughs> and trying to wean us off of fossil fuel? Um, Scott says it's ambitious. I say it's detached from reality. Andrew Jackson, anything you did? He, did he ever have an energy policy? It wasn't on his radar, but 
I'm sure, Jackson, there would have been a note to President Biden. I request the presence of an interview meeting. Uh, it's a duel. So yeah, we're going to shotgun at six paces there to settle this. Go. Good deal. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here's Brian in Florence. Hello, Brian. Hey, Ken, uh, they, they, they constantly want to, Biden and his administration constantly want to point the fingers at the oil companies saying they got 9,000 leases and all this oil they can drill for. But what decent businessman would literally invest in the oil market now when you know the guy that can pull the plug on you can do it any minute? Why would you invest any kind of money in capital to, to drill more oil when Biden could you know, put you down and out of business in a heartbeat? Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate that. And I think that's speculative investment. Um, I mean, if I'm, let's say I'm an investor. I mean, I'm not, but say I were an investor. There's no way I would invest in fossil fuels. I mean, the Dem- one of the major political parties in America, we are duopoly, got Republicans and Democrats, one party that wins 50% of the elections. I mean, we're an equally divided country. I think both of you would agree to that. So you got Democrats that are going to win about half the elections in America. They have declared war on a sector of the economy that has been the largest energy producer, has led to more prosperity and advancement of humankind than anything else. The internal combustion engine and advanced farming have improved the lot in life uh, of men around men and women around the world like nothing ever has. And the Democrats, Dr. Coppin, have declared war, war basically on the internal combustion engine. We have to keep in mind that what a president says during a campaign, even while that person's in office, doesn't necessarily jibe with what they're doing behind the scenes. Okay, let me ask you this. Now, i got to interrupt you for one second. <laughs> if, if, the, if the Democrats in the Senate and House were to figure out a way to pass Build Back America, the new green energy deal, would Biden veto or sign it? Oh, he would sign it. Oh, sure he I would. I have no doubt he would so sign it. So these are not just the spoken word. It's to, a, to a degree, he believes that we need to abandon fossil fuels as the major energy producing source of our economy in preference to renewable energies. But you, but you forget the oil companies themselves have been moving that direction long before Biden became president. But, but the president. oil companies have been forced. I mean, they, they, they've been subsidized. They, they've been in, uh, incentivized. They, they have been um, scared the living daylights out of. I mean, the, the Democrats in Washington have declared war on fossil fuels, which has led to the combustion engine and advanced farming that has improved the, the lives of the common people around this world in, in a way that no nothing ever has. And and that to me, that's that's bizarre. But you, there's a history here. Let's let's look at the oil. Let's look at coal, coal companies okay. as an example. The coal sector has been under attack since at least the 1970s on the grounds that it produces an enormous amount of pollution, which caused a reaction among the American people in general, who said, "You know what? I'm tired of this dirtiness. I'm tired of the pollution. I'm tired of the smog. I want to see things get cleaned up." And so we saw legislation passed. In the actually, it's really the '60s, but into the '70s, including by Republicans who said, "Okay, fine, I'm happy to move in that direction." The the oil and the energy sectors realized, "Okay, fine, if we're going to be moving away from coal, we've got to be able to find an alternative." What are the alternatives out there? One of them is, for instance, natural gas using fracking. So you've seen an increase in the amount of fracking taking place in this country, in Pennsylvania, in Colorado among other other locations, because that's where the energy companies themselves believe the best profits can be made. So to say that this is Democrat-driven, that I think is a falsity. There are Democrats and Republicans been pushing for this long time ago, and the energy companies themselves said, okay, fine, if this is a way not only to please the politicians, 
but also to please a public that is reacting to what we're doing, then we'll head in that direction. But Dr. Bolt, if other people are generating energy with coal, if other people around the world are generating energy with fossil fuels, um, if they're not abandoning then we're at a distinct competitive disadvantage. Oh, absolutely. I mean, th- there is no doubt about it. I mean, if, if it's easier to produce energy via coal or fossil fuel, and we're trying to do it with renewables, and we're trying to create a market where a market does not currently exist, we are at, and our businesses and our people by that method, are at a distinct competitive disadvantage. Oh, absolutely, right? You, 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 you can put regulations, high taxes on them. All you got to do is just got to push them somewhere else. And that pollution still comes across the border at, at the end of the day. But again, there's just... There's there's something about just it, it's it's in our it's in our DNA as the American people of just we like to just get out and drive. I, mean, I I got a big pickup truck driving along country roads, back roads, just driving down the interstate, driving somewhere. Uh, and again, the Democrats are just kind of pushing against a closed door. Most Americans just just want to have be able to get whatever vehicle they want, cheap gas. They want to be able to just to drive throughout the country, just drive. They don't have to take public transportation unless they absolutely have to. Again, this is just a it's a it's a it's probably an unpopular position that the Democrats have made. They think the politics are there. They think the younger voters they go for it. But again, guys like me, it's just, we 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 just we just can't stomach uh, this position of the Democrats. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We have Perry in Florence. Hello, Perry. Hello. Um, I'd like to go back a second to the uh, comment that Professor Kaufman made historically regarding the uh, envy or admiration and the. Uh, 20s and 30s in the United States for communism, and of course it went up into the 40s. And I'm just wondering, um, by what land, through what lens or by what measures can anything that happened in the Soviet Union in the 20s, 30s, or 40s be considered successful or something we should we should emulate? There were the uh, two massive famines. There was the collectivization of the farms. There were the purge and trials of technocrats. People who ran companies, and when the companies or the manufacturing places didn't get stuff done right, they were executed. There were purges of the generals. Uh, it was it was going to hell in a handbasket under Stalin, and he was he was pushing it even harder. And we were duped. Uh, Roosevelt, his members of his secretary who went to Russia, were basically shown Potemkin villages of how wonderful this is going, how wonderful that is going, and. The bottom line is the only time that ever works is through powered and imposition from the top and expropriation of anything that is needed, whether it be food, money, technology, from the people who've made it, who've manufactured it, and who truly need it. So I'm really confused when you say or when you said that in fact Russia was doing well, because by no stretch of the imagination was it doing well. And I'd like to know how you arrived at that observation. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it, Dr. Kaufman. I think the the answer to that goes back to the caller who talked about the boat, uh, the boat analogy, that we have to look at ultimately what the what root the, cause. What, what, the, what, the, what the cause and the end result. Sure. What Americans were looking at, when I say admiration, what Americans were looking at was their own country. They're seeing a depression. They're seeing 25% unemployment. There are, lo- there, there are questions about, is capitalism in fact working? In the Soviet Union, you had things like the new economic policy, the new economic program, these five-year plans that were taking place, where com- it, it appeared that, that communism was doing very well, the Soviet Union was doing very well economically, 
And what Americans were not going to be looking at, were not looking at was, okay, how are they getting there? What they're hearing is, wow, their economy is growing. Our economy is suffering. What have the communists figured out that we haven't? And so you do see as an end result, this growth of the U.S. Communist Party, this growth, this movement towards socialism and even communism in this country, because what Americans are seeing is not the cause, but the end result taking place in the Soviet Union. And so they're willing then to give communism a chance. So what do you make of today? In, the day, in today's Democrat Party, the majority of Democrats under the age of 40 prefer socialism as a governing philosophy to capitalism. What do you make of that recent phenomenon? I think that it's, it's a lack of understanding of what socialism actually entails. Um, it would require. Are we teaching kids? Both of you guys are professors. Um, you're not in the economy. You're not teaching. E- 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 not, excuse me, economics or business. But but has higher education failed to propose communism and socialism in an accurate fashion? I personally don't think so. But I don't know what what's being taught in in, in every school. I mean, obviously, I. I but don't is have that it kind of is power. it academia's responsibility? Both of you guys are members of academia. Is it academia's responsibility? to talk about capitalism in relation to socialism and communism in accurate form and fashion. Sure. And, and, and but, but, if, but when you look at the numbers, and I read this all the time, when you look at Pew Research and you look at the number of kids under the age of 30 who went to college, graduated from college, they have a very alternate view than those who did not go to college. I'm not accusing you guys of anything. I'm certainly not doing that. But, but what responsibilities academia have well, to properly uh, articulate socialism opposed to capitalism. I think we do have a responsibility, but we have to keep in mind there's so many other outlets where, where people today can get information. I mean, the, the social media is an example. So I can teach my students as accurate as possible a, a back a, a his, the, the, the history of the United States. But if they start seeing things on social media that disagree with that, they may say, you know what? I just like the way this person in social media is saying things. I'm going to agree with them instead. Um, and I think it also ties into this broader reaction against expertise that, oh, um, if I can find it on the Internet, it must be true. And so I don't need the expert telling me what the truth is. It's right here in front of me. Well, there's a reason why Dr. Bolt and I teach history. <laughs> I mean, we have the expertise. We have the knowledge. We have the education to be able to impart that knowledge. But unfortunately, one of the things we're competing against is that other sources, those other sources of information. As a professor at an American university, Dr. Bolt, is it your job in economics or business to condemn the failures of communism and socialism? I don't know if it's, if it's exactly my job, but okay. I, I, I do it. I mean, I, I, I raise the flag and we, I've used the line several times before in the classes when we talk about capitalism versus communism. Uh, how many people in Miami are building a rowboat to go to Havana right now? It's, it's always the other way around. Why are so many people trying to leave Cuba to come to the United States of America? That's all you need to know right there. But again, I think most of all of us in this room, right, we were born during the Cold War. We have we have vivid memories. And even when the, in the late 80s, when the rhetoric with President Reagan was ratcheted up and there was that possibility once again that, hey, this thing could escalate quickly. Maybe this is a teaching moment right now with what's going on over, over in Europe and in Ukraine that we can say, all right, this is what happens with a totalitarian, an individual who wants to bring back a communist form of government. And this is where you connect the dots, you extrapolate the curve. This is where it ends up. Turn on your televisions, right? Do you, you want to have these burning apartment buildings, these blown up stadiums uh, at home here in the United States of America? This is the end result of communism. 
is Ukraine. Last question. Got about a minute and a half here, Rev. I want to get both these guys to address this. Is Ukraine ambitious to be a Western culture and society? Do we have any clarity there? I mean, obviously, they're heroic. I mean, they're defending their, their homeland. I mean, we all respect, admire, appreciate that. But, but I've heard a lot of talk that they have already embraced Western democracies and the Western way of life. I, I don't buy that. You say what there? I think they were moving in that direction. I don't think they were there yet, but I think they were certainly moving in that direction. Desires to join the EU. Um, and they had a fledgling democracy there that was trying to get established. So I think they were moving in that direction. They just weren't given a chance to complete the process. Dr. Bolt? I think yeah, a series of important first steps had been taken. And why is Putin and Russia in there so heavily and not uh, not getting out? Or just continuing to twist in the wind. So, yes, I think they, a series of important first steps were taken. And this is just, just fascinating to see how all of this uh, continues to be played out right before our eyes. No question. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Hey, I thought the college professors were leaving. They asked to hang around. They learn a lot when they... <laughs> Watch us in action here, Rev. So we've oh, agreed. To, yeah, we're, we're giving class a tutorial on uh, world history and U.S. history and socialism and, and democracies and all these other sorts of things. They've agreed to hang on uh, for the day. We've got about three or four minutes here before we take our next break. Someone's on the phone. If I'm yep. not mistaken, let's go there. It's Jeff in Florence. Hello, Jeff. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hey, Jeff. Hey, uh, just real quick. Um, if there was blowback against these new green energy sources, that we see today against nuclear, where do you think the United States would be? If there were blowback against some of these, say that again, Jeff, I'm sorry. So, so we've got all these new technologies, new fuel sources. We've okay. got, uh, they're making fuel from methanol. They're making fuel from CO2. Now mm -hmm. we've got the methanol coming online. We've got green ammonia, blue ammonia, all these alternative fuel sources. Hell for just, got a patent for a combustion engine that runs on hydrogen. Is that a bad thing? No, that's a great thing. Okay. But if, if, if you, all the, all this outrage about fossil fuels and going away from them, did you have that when we went to nuclear in the sixties? I would imagine you had some of that. I don't know how much, I mean, I, I was not obviously, I mean, I was alive, but not old enough to understand political complexities. Well, we anyway. Yeah, we did it anyway. You're right. Right. And so so why not embrace it? Because the rest of the world's going to do it. Well, I'm not, I'm not. It's not that I'm embracing it. I just think I'm accepting reality. And I think reality will require us to depend largely on fossil fuels for much longer than some of the um, and Kaufman says ambitious Democrats. I say um, we, disconnected from reality. No, I want to make it clear, Jeff. And I mean, I, I hope I've explained I'm not opposed to renewable energy. I believe entrepreneurs and innovators have always created better ways or invented better ways to get things done. I just think it's disconnected from reality to believe we can do it as quickly as some of these um, ambitious plans of the uh, of the Democrats. Look, there's there's ambitious plans. That's what politicians do. They make promises. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> right? And voters um, hold them accountable. And another an another thing I'd like to get the professor's take on: Why did the Soviet Union turn to communism and socialism? Okay. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. Got a couple of minutes here. Sure. I'm Dr. Kaufman. I'll start with you. Well, I mean, we, there's a long history there, but a rejection to, in very brief, a rejection of the Tsarist system, mm -hmm. uh, a belief that Marxism, Leninism was the best solution to what they saw as, as a terrible situation in the Soviet Union. Dr. Bolt? Right. There had been a sort of a, a long buildup, 15 to 20 years before you had the Bolshevik Revolution. 
But the tipping point for many of the Soviet Union was the, the failure of the Tsar in World War I. A failed military experience was what was the tipping point. You kind of see where we're, uh, where we're going with this. I mean, sometimes history has a funny way of repeating itself, perhaps. It certainly does. Um, but, but you would agree, but I think both of you would agree, that, that capitalism is proved that it is incomparable when it comes to raising the quality of life of the people who govern themselves in a capitalistic fashion, however imperfect capitalism may be. Uh, second, doesn't hold a lot to the liberating of humanity, improving the quality of life of humanity as capitalism has. Oh, I mean, I, I, I can't see anything better than capitalism. Uh, it's just, do you want an unfettered capitalism or should it be a regulated capitalism? Well, that's where the debate becomes uh, comes into play. No question about it. Dr. Bolt? Within 10 years after World War II, at the, at the height of the Cold War, the people of the United States had the highest standard of living of anybody in the world. And the proof is in the pudding. Yeah, well said. Thanks to both of you, Thank you. Thank for you. hanging around that extra segment. Rev, got to give them a raise this week. All More right. money than we normally give <laughs> these two guys. How about double? Yeah, yeah there you go. Double. Uh, two times zero, zero. Okay, <laughs> correct. Exactly. Uh, back in just a minute. Thanks to both Thank of you. Thank you. 843-661-0937. Last hour on a Tuesday morning, we began the show um, complaining about the coaching search of Gamecock <laughs> football we're ending the show or another hour to go we'll end wherever you decide we end but uh the last i don't know the segment with the professors got very interesting to me when you start talking about the energy production uh production and um you know when you go to a city or a town and you see the nicest restaurants and and the hotels and the civic centers and all these other sorts of things and we consider the power generating plant on the edge of town the eyesore if only we could get rid of that um that nasty-looking power-generating station at the end of town, I'll tell you what you'll do. You'll be a whole lot better off in the long run getting rid of that dress shop and that movie theater and all these other quality of life. Energy has been um, the driver in the advancement of humankind for centuries and well, centuries sometimes we have centuries. these discussions. We don't talk about what to me is the obvious energy production in farming, for example, mm -hmm. how we all sustain and stay alive or the transportation of goods, you know, from point A to point B to, to stock your shelves. I it, mean, it is when, the, it's the fundamentals of the way we live our lives. We love going to nice restaurants and, and going to theaters and staying in nice hotels. But at the end of the day, none of those experiences are the same if you don't flip the light switch on and the bulb turns on. And I'll give you two words, air conditioning. Yeah, air conditioning, um, pumping gasoline into your car and driving wherever. I mean, we became a very mobile society. When you go back to, I think it was the mid-1800s in Romania that the first ore refinery was built. I think 1860 um, in Pennsylvania. I mean, I've read some about this, and uh, believe it or not, Rev, uh, Springsteen has a song called Youngstown. And you he talks say. about, I mean, he talks about coal and oil and energy production. I mean, he doesn't do it in, in a political fashion, but, um, but in Pennsylvania in 18, I don't know, the mid 1800s, a little bit before the civil war, um, America had its first oil refinery. So yeah, when I say, um, the internal combustion engine and advanced farming have affected in a positive way, the way we live our lives in, in ways unimaginable, would you give up? your internal combustion engine, or your cell phone? Would you give up your iPad or indoor plumbing? I mean, these things that are not sexy, they're not fancy schmancy, but they're fundamental. I mean, they're elemental in our lives. We can't do without those. Um, I can do without my iPhone. I don't want to, but I can. 
It's going to be real complicated to do without air conditioning or to do without indoor plumbing or to do without the ability to pump gas in my car and drive to work every day. And I think, you know, Jeff and I would not agree to this. I think Jeff said something a second ago. You know, do you not approve of that? I approve of anything that generates energy cheaper and more and, and cleaner. I mean, yeah, absolutely I do. Now, now we've got to find a balance, clean and cheap. Are we willing to allow? Because, I mean, Scott was talking about, Dr. Coppin was talking about coal-generated power. Um, when I was on county council, Santee Cooper was licensed to build a coal generating or coal generated power facility in my council district and i became aware of that scrubbers and clean coal and all these other sorts of things now you, there's a pro and a con you got conservation to say you know the business community's lying they're not really scrubbing the coal they're not really um the raw particulates are still exceeding what is in our safeness and our safety and well-being and there's kind of a yin and yang a back and forth um is that a healthy suspicion and a healthy debate and dialogue probably so but, but I think what, what conservatives need to understand is, and, and conservatives need to articulate these points, I'm not opposed to renewable energy. Elon Musk has no bigger cheerleader than me. Elon Musk has no bigger fan than I. I hope there is a day that all passenger vehicles are electric. And we're doing it cleaner and, and more renewable and less dependent on Saudi Arabia, less dependent on Russia, less dependent on some of these, um, some of these groups of people who don't have our best interest at heart. But I think there's a difference in being ambitious and being innovative and, and entrepreneurial and being detached from reality. And I think the Democrats today in America with a new Green Deal has a serious detachment from reality. It will, will there be a day sooner than later that we disconnect our passenger vehicles from fossil fuels to renewable energy? Probably. I mean, I can see that. I don't know if we ever, well, I mean, it's just unfair. Um, I don't know that we ever, in my lifetime, um, a 747 lands or takes off without the assistance of rocket fuel or jet fuel. I mean, you know, maybe 100 years after I'm dead and gone, there will be a battery-powered jet airplane that takes off and lands with 200 people aboard. I just don't think I'll live to see that. But I think the private sector, I mean, give me a great invention invented in, in Russia. I mean, give, give me a communist country that has offered up one of the greatest inventions in the history of mankind. I mean, all the great inventions that have fundamentally changed the way we live our lives came from capitalist economies. Capitalism is not perfect. It is, but you've got these damn capitalists, <laughs> you know, and, and, and uber capitalist and greedy capitalists and corrupt capitalists. It's called human nature. I mean, the, the people or the economy, and whether it's capitalist or communism. But give me a great example of communism making people's lives better. There is none. I mean, Milton Friedman kind of talked extensively and lectured extensively about, you know, the, the effects of capitalism and the effects of communism or socialism and what has uplifted man, what, what has allowed people to enjoy a better quality of life. I mean, it's not even close. And I don't think liberal Democrats argue that without understanding what they're arguing. I mean, there's some, some of these kids that just don't know any better. I mean, there was a day in my life I didn't know any better. I did some dumb things and thought some dumb things. A lot of it was because I just didn't know any better. But as you mature and develop and understand the world around you, you begin kind of adjusting some of those beliefs and opinions that you have. So, so, so yeah, I mean, I do believe that that energy and the way we produce energy has led to a better life for you, I, and the people listening to my voice. And, and if we innovate, and we create and we allow people to be entrepreneurial, guess what? We'll probably have a good way to produce energy 
for the next hundred years that it may include or may not include the internal combustion engine. Um, but right now, it just does not. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a serious detachment from reality to believe that we can power any economy, much less this economy, absent of fossil fuels. It's absurd. Now, now Jeff says politicians make very ambitious statements and proclamations. Uh, he's right. I mean, Republicans do it. Democrats do it. What does Trump say? You know, I did all this and I did all of that. Well, some things he did and some things he didn't do. But, but I think energy is, is so essential to the way we live our lives that you got to be careful about what promises you make and how able you are to deliver on those promises. Let's go to the phone. Bert in Florence. Hey, Bert. Good morning. Well, I'm, I'm glad y'all didn't put me on the last segment because uh, I don't think I could cram this in 30 seconds, but I'm glad you held me over. Look, the beginning of toxic masculinity, you said you didn't know where that began. Uh, the New World Order, the first one that I heard talking about that was the Elder Bush. He talked about we're, we're putting together the New World Order and we're going to implement it. And he was very proud about it, very public about it. And we were shocked then. I remember that distinctly. So Biden was not the first one doing that. They had a meeting in the, it was the late 40s or early 50s. And it was recorded. And I've listened to the recording. And it was very laid out how they were going to implement the new world order and how they were going to take over. And I, I won't even name the group because you'll cut me off, but I'll send it to you later. Anyway, in this meeting, they laid out very clearly about the welfare system and the removing of the father and how to take over the country. And that's exactly what they did. Toxic masculinity started right there when they implemented the welfare to the extreme of, you know, the first ones that, that got it real heavy were the blacks. And the first thing they do is tell the mother, well, you know, he's mean to the kids and he's mean to you and we got to get him out of there. So if you don't let him come back, then we'll help you. And they became the father of the family. And it was real heavy in the black community. It spread into the white community and it's everywhere today. The welfare system has absolutely done the whole uh, masculinity problem. Um, they've had the hiccups from like, you know, Reagan come along and messed them up. Trump come along and messed them up. But they have followed their plan, that same plan that they laid out, in, I believe it's the late 40s. They laid this out completely and logically, and I mean, it was a great plan. It still is a great plan. I may hate the left, but the fact is they know what they're doing long term. And when I was up there, Dr. Kaufman, talking about, uh, you know, the, the oil thing, oh, they could do this, and they, they're choosing not to those capitalists doing this. I, I think he's shilling. I don't think for a second that he really is not aware that they can't use those land plots. But anyway, I, I just wanted to let y'all know that's, that's where that masculinity problem started. And the only way to get rid of it, like I say every time, get the government out of our private business. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. We can stay in this energy because to me, um, once again, Apple's an important company in our world, right? I mean, Apple's a, uh, it's a relevant company in our world. We decide to make it important. I mean, we communicate with one another. That's important that we are able to communicate. We do communicate. Most of us use our cell phones and our computers. Um, email is replaced. Uh, the letter, the text is replaced. The phone call It's probably less personal. But Apple has contributed mightily to the way we live our lives. But, but what would you rather have? Energy? or some of these other devices that provide a higher quality of life, innovation, 
Um, you know, the telephone was one thing. We've innovated into a handheld computer. I mean, it serves as a telephone. It does exactly what a, a telephone has always done. But I think energy is a different animal. I mean, energy is energy. It doesn't matter how it's produced. It's still energy. Whether Tesla gets you from point A to point B or uh, an 18-wheeler gets you from point, point A to point B, it requires energy. So, so energy is energy is energy. The, I don't know if the definition of energy changes. I'm not an engineer, but the definition of energy is the definition of energy is the definition of energy. How do we generate that energy? How, how do we propel a vehicle from point A to point B? And, um, and I think historically, fossil fuels have served the world unbelievably well. I told you earlier, the only person I've ever spoken with in my life that I knew I had no business speaking with. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of people. More people that I've talked to in my life are smarter than I am than not as smart as I am. Um, but the only person I've ever really gone down that road with was the late Richard Rainwater, who was Darla Moore's husband. And I, in my political days, I crossed paths with those sorts of people from time to time. And I can remember distinctly a conversation that Richard and I had about energy. And he was all about peak oil. And I mean, he was a, a, a world-class investor, you know, one of these um, financier icons that was so highly regarded in that world. Rev um, holds him near and dear because he financed some of the Michael Eisner Disney deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was, a, um, he was, as we say in the country, a highfalutin financier who had a lot to say about a lot of things, and it was obvious his, um, his intellect far exceeded mine. His understanding and his grasp and his depth and breadth far exceeded um, mine. But I can pose, and I can fake it with the best for a minute or two. Um, but he started talking about, you know, the plight of man. And, and graphing and, and, and charting the historical nature of mankind and how he lived his life. And it didn't fundamentally change until we found petroleum. I mean, there, there, were, there were things that changed, of course. I mean, you, you know, um, a little better way to cook the, the tiger, a little better way to kill the, the giraffe, a little better. I mean, historically, we've always innovated and, and been somewhat entrepreneurial, but, but it was very rudimentary. It was um, Neanderthal-like in the way. And all of a sudden, we find out that you can take this crude oil, convert to petroleum, power an engine that turns a drive shaft or turns a, you know, a jet propeller, and next thing you know, you're transporting people from point A to point B in ways that we never, ever imagined, and it changed humankind. I mean, name something that has changed our lives more than energy. You can't. I mean, the, the second isn't close. I mean, I guess fire, but I mean, fi- you know, you couldn't, you couldn't um, burn coal and provide energy without fire. So, I mean, but fire's not an invention. I mean, fire's something that has always been available. We just harnessed it, was that we're able to utilize it. And it really goes back to some of these, the sophisticates in society will convince you that the, the you know, the, the coal mine on the edge of town is such an eyesore. Wouldn't a golf course be lovely there? And the energy, you know, the the, um, the coal-fired energy plant on the edge of town, wouldn't it be so much better if that were a subdivision with a lake in the middle? Yeah, of course it would. But you've got to generate energy. And the way we've historically generated energy in the country and around the world is fossil fuel, the burning of fossil fuel. Um, that doesn't mean we're going to do it forever. I mean, think about this, Rev. If the first oil refinery was built in America— in the mid-1800s, I don't know the year, but it's somewhere in the mid-1800s. I think I've read it was a couple of years before the Civil War, maybe during the Civil War. Um, so we've had, what, 170 years 
of refining oil into petroleum in America and powering the economy? Would we have had an industrial revolution had it not been for the ability to do that? No. So, so I think we're looking at coal and, 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 and fossil fuels in general as a curse on the world. Do we know how big a blessing they've been to the world? Do you realize how our lives would be had somebody not figured out how to, I mean, the guy that figured out you could take horses and turn them into glue? Okay, we need glue every now and then. What about the guy that figured out you could take oil and turn it into gasoline, kerosene, and diesel fuel? I mean, that really rocked our world, changed our world fundamentally and forever. But, but to Jeff's point, should we always pursue a cleaner, more efficient way to, to generate energy? Of course, absolutely. Um, I don't buy, buy into climate change. I don't know if you do or not. Some listening to my voice probably do. Some probably don't. Um, there are many, many, many of you out there that don't know. To me, you're the smart ones. When you say, I don't know how much we're contributing to the changing of the, the planet's climate. You're the smart ones. Those who say, no, it's not. And those who say, yes, it is. Th- those are the ones that will probably end up biting or eating their words and biting their tongue at some point in time. Uh, the right answer is we don't know. But I think the, the, the economy, the private sector, will dictate what needs to be done or not. And I think when government tries to, I mean, something as important as energy, and government's all of a sudden going to say, hey, we bureaucrats and institutionalists, we know more than Exxon. We know more than Shell. We know more than BP. We know more than the Wildcatters of Oklahoma and Texas. We know more than the Saudis. Because somebody voted for us. Somebody appointed us. We're important. We got nice suits and big offices. And all of a sudden, we're going to put them in charge of dictating the energy policy of America? Let it innovate itself. Let, let entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs tend to do. And that is find opportunities to make money. And if a Tesla can get you from point A to point B and not burn any gas, and gas is $4 a gallon, guess what the consumer will do? They'll eventually buy a Tesla. But I think the marketplace dictates the terms and conditions of which that evolution takes place. It's not government's job to force or subsidize or incentivize you to stop traveling by one means and start traveling by another. But our government, in its infinite wisdom, seems to know no bounds. And it's not just incentivizing. In this case, it's it's punishing. It's harmful. Sure. It's hurting. I mean, I, I read something yesterday about BlackRock. I mean, there's some of these, um the, the consciousness scores of the BlackRock investments. In other words, if you are a company that is not made as a priority clean energy, you're going to be punished. They're going to make recommendations. BlackRock is a tremendously powerful company. They're going to make recommendations to financial institutions about you're not willing to comply to their orders and their edicts. I mean, this is a sophisticated conversation, and politicians don't have the answer. And BlackRock is fundamental. I mean, they're profit-motivated. So BlackRock is making advisories to banks about what Rev's got a business. And Rev has said, look, I get climate change, but I don't know that I buy into all of that. Rev needs to borrow money to expand his business. BlackRock gives Rev a score. And because of his failure to comply, failure to accept that we need to be all green all the time, the bank says, yeah, maybe, maybe not on the loan. Let our board meet and talk and think about it. And that's, you're right. I mean, that's not just incentivizing one side of this dynamic that is punishing the other side. And government has no business creating the outcome. The marketplace will always do a better job of creating and dictating the proper outcome for the general public. Take a break. Back in a minute. 
You know, the, the one thing that people don't give enough serious consideration to on this energy question, um, you and I were talking a second ago and you were saying, you know, getting go- goods across the country, you know, mm-hmm. product and shipping steel and wood and whatever it is we need. Everything. I mean, yeah, widgets from one so- shining sea to the other. The one thing that I've read about, and, and it concerns those who have invested heavily in green energy, how do they recreate the torque? that they're able to create from um, now we got a historical advantage. We've done it a long time with diesel engines and with gasoline engines, diesel in particular. Um, how do you power a cruise ship? How do you power a tractor? Who's got a hundred acre field to plow? How does a 747 jet airplane take off with 300 people on board? I mean, that takes an enormous amount of torque. And a lot of these people who are ambitious of green energy they worry how long it could take to get to a place of recreating that sort of torque. How much torque does it take for a tractor trailer, an 18-wheeler to climb a hill with, you know, um, 25,000 pounds of widgets in the back? I mean, this is the working world. I mean, this world I'm somewhat familiar with, having been in the truck body business, hence the trucking business. Um, yeah, I don't doubt that Elon Musk. I mean, it's obvious he's real close to being competitive and getting a car for you and your wife to drive from Florence to Charleston or Florence to the beach and have a good time and not have to buy any gas. You charge it somewhere, but what do we do with the tractor trailers and the jets? FedEx and UPS have how many jets in the air right now? I mean, while you and I sleep tonight, how many jets does FedEx and UPS have in the air? How many are electrically powered? I think it's very ambitious to say we're going to generate enough power via renewables to take care of all the economy's energy needs. I mean, it's just disconnected from reality. Right. Could we get to a place real soon where we're 50% passenger car, electric, 50% fossil fuel? Probably. But what about the ships, the cargo ships? Well, it doesn't make sense to cut off the current supply before the new supply is ready. Well, you can't. Right? I mean, you just can't. But that's what they're doing. Sure, that's exactly what they're trying to do. How many, how many, um, how many tractors has Joe Biden ever plowed a field on? How many tractor trailers have Joe Biden ever driven? How many planes has he ever taken off and landed? I mean, I know he's taken off and landed in a lot of planes, but he doesn't understand the inertia and the thrust and the propulsion and the torque it takes to do these things. Um, that's what makes this economy go. I mean, this economy does not operate as much as you believe it does. This economy does not operate on the computer or the cell phone. The computer and cell phone are tremendously important in the way we live our lives. But if you take raw energy out of the equation and you live in a world without torque, you'll starve to death because farmers can't plow the crops. They can't grow the crops nor nor plow the fields or produce the food. The, the absurdity of that, but that's what happens when people hypothesize and theorize on what they wish was real. Let's go to the phone. Tim in Pamplico. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. How are y'all this morning? Hey, Tim. How are you? All right, buddy. Well, let me ask you this, Ken, because now this is something for the environmentalists. And it's something that the petroleum industry saved. What was what did we replace with petroleum when it when they drilled that first well in Titusville, Pennsylvania, and started um, um, you know making the oil where you could use it? What did it replace? Hmm. Help me. Whale oil. Okay. All right, because that's what they lit the lamps with. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're exactly right. Whale oil. Mm-hmm. It saved the whales, Bo. It saved the whales. Okay? So the petroleum industry saved the whales. There would be no whales in the world today if it weren't for Titusville, Pennsylvania, and an oil refinery plant. That's exactly right. Now, 
Now, that, like you say, that was like, you know, uh, Civil War's time, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mr. Diesel didn't make his first diesel over there in Germany until uh, 1880-ish something. Yeah. You know, and you know me, I like motors and engines and stuff, and I've always, you know, studied about this kind of stuff, right? All right, so what did they do when they were going to make the oil, the kerosene for the lamps? What did they do with the gasoline and the diesel that was coming out, that they were fracking off, that they were boiling off to get to the light oil to light the lamps? What did they do with the gasoline and the diesel prior to the internal combustion engine? I feel like you know the answer. They poured it in the river and in the dirt. Because gasoline was too volatile. Mm-hmm. They couldn't use it for anything. So till the man come up with the internal combustion engine, with a spark plug, that he could burn that gasoline and use it, it was a byproduct. It was thrown away. Diesel was the same way because it was heavier. Your first thing, you got all these big towers that you see at a, at a uh, refinery are called fracking towers. They boil that oil. The first oil that comes off, is your heavy oil that they use in power plants and, like you said, uh, big um, ocean liners. That's heavy oil, black oil. You see, you know, uh, kind of hanging on uh, sometimes on the tankers going down the road. Your next product that comes off is diesel fuel. Your next product that comes off is kerosene. Then your next product that comes off is gasoline, and it goes right on up the fracking tower as these things are reaching different temperatures and it's fracturing those molecules to make your different petroleum products so as we go up the fracking tower directly we start getting tooling stuff like this that's used in all kinds of different industries and then you get your other stuff that they'll take and then they'll turn that and boil it off till it turns into a powder it's called ta powder now we had a plant here in florence between florence and darlington still do now it doesn't do the business that it used to but it takes that ta powder and mixes it with glycol and some other things and it makes these little tiny pellets. Now, what do we make out of these pellets? I'm listening. We make our, pe- our Pepsi Cola bottles and all these bottles. And it's called, you know, and there's a big, there's a guy down there in uh, Charleston, I think, and he has a, a new port where they're exporting these um, carloads of, you know, uh, Connex containers full of these pellets. You know, these are the pellets that you make plastics out of. You make, um, polyester fiber out of um now then also you've got the dupont plants that make your um uh, i used to know the name of it because i worked in the dupont plant maintenance but you know you make these pellets to make your plastics now so we're gonna have all these electric cars what are the electric cars interiors made out of a residue like of fossil fuels re- residue of plastic what are, what are they the insulation around the wires made out of in the Electric cars, plastic. So now they said, oh, well, we're going to do, we're going to um, um, insulate these wires with a soybean-based installation. That's all fine and well. Where are you going to get the soybeans from if the farmer can't farm them with the tractor? Because, like you say, he can't get fuel now because it's $27 a gallon. So, but anyway, guess what loves soybean-based wire insulation? Rats and mice. So if you use the soybean-based wire insulation, your car's going to get eaten up by rats and mice, and you're going to have a fire, and it's going to burn your house down while you're charging your car. What I'm getting at is there is no replacement at this time for the petroleum markets all the way around. Amen. Thousands of, uh, thousands of items are made from petroleum products. People have these idiots in Washington, Biden, 
the little beautiful girl from um, 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 New York there that's an idiot. I mean, uh, she's she's hot as she can be, but she's just an idiot. <laughs> they have no idea what it takes to make this world go round. The jobs that it, cre- that it creates at all the different plants, they have no idea what they're shutting off, you see. But, see, they can't think that far out ahead of themselves. They have the googly eyes and all this we want to save the world thing. The fossil fuels have done save the world. There's so many things that they could not live without that fossil fuels have provided for them and given to them through the years that they have no no concept of what they would be doing away with. And and, and to me, these people, oh, so now let's go to our, our um, wind turbine. What greases the wheels in the big wind turbine? That would be oil. That'd be oil. Some sort of, some sort of lubricant. Has to be some sort of lubricant. Yes. I, I can't remember how many gallons, but it's several hundred gallons that you have to use in that wind turbine to lubricate it. And they've showed pictures of it where it's just draining down the side of the wind turbine out there in the middle of the uh, plains where there was never no pollution before. And by the way, now we're going to bury the, the wind turbine blades in the dirt that they will never rot out in Wyoming. And, um, you know, so all of these things they're trying to do but they have no concept of what they're getting into and also the concept of what jobs will be lost, what technology will be done away with, because you can't get it fast enough of what the internal combustion engine and the petroleum industry brought to mankind years ago, and we saved the whales. That's, that's, thank you, Tim. Appreciate that, my man. Hey, and if you guys have ever thought that I am the single and lone graduate of the Hannah Pamplico Institution of Higher Learning and Advanced Critical Thinking, you just heard the second. Now, there's, <laughs> there's, there's multiple graduates. It's not just me. You heard kind of a good old boy explanation of, um, and I mean, I, I get it. I mean, there, there are a lot of smart people who wear nice suits who speak in proper grammar, and, and they articulate themselves as if they know what they're talking about. If you believe that in the next 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 years, we are going to not include fossil fuels as part of our energy generation, then you are a moron. I'm sorry. I mean, you just are. I mean, there is no other excuse for that. Or you just simply don't understand. That's probably unfair. You're not a moron. You just have no understanding at all of the way the economy works and how important power is and how critical fossil fuel generated but power. Joe Biden said by 2035. Well, I mean, Joe Biden says that. Now, Jeff says that's an ambitious, and politicians are always ambitious. The spoken word means absolutely nothing in a field where a tractor doesn't have any torque. The spoken word doesn't mean a single thing when there's a 747 sitting to the end of a runway with a solar panel on top, 300 people on board, and a cloud cover comes by. I mean, it's just a disconnection from reality is what it is. Uh, you know, Scott Coppin, Dr. Coppin uh, said it's ambitious. Uh, Jeff said it's ambitious. No, it's completely detached from reality. Will it happen one day? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I'll make this prediction. I don't know that we'll ever power a global economy minus fossil fuel totally. It's too beneficial. It's too serviceable. Tim said it saved mankind. It probably, in some weird way, has. Name name something in your life today you'll do. Now, we're infatuated with this phone. We're infatuated with this computer. But energy and the producing of energy is essential to how we live our lives. And we're allowing institutionalists and bureaucrats to dictate how we're going to generate the power 
to propel the largest economy in the history of mankind to a better place? I mean, if I had to list 100 people that need to be in charge of energy policy in America, Joe Biden's not one. He's simply not. I mean, let's, let's put Musk in the room. Let's put creative, bright, assertive, entrepreneurial people in the room who have skin in the game. I mean, Elon Musk even says. I wouldn't even ride in a car that Joe Biden well, is mean, driving. Rev, Elon Musk says it's a pipe dream. I mean, he says that over and over. It's a pipe dream to believe that we can um, disassociate ourselves or disconnect ourselves from fossil fuel-produced energy. It's impossible. We can't do that. But yet, you know, if someone wears a nice enough suit and articulates themselves in, a, in such an impressionable, excuse me, an impressive fashion, then they're the expert. Kaufman says a lot, the failure of the expert. You know why the expertocracy has failed America? It's as simple as this. I mean, we've got a class of people in America. They, they perceive themselves to be experts. So some have been appointed by others, but most have appointed themselves experts. Al Gore is an expert in climate change. John Kerry is an expert in climate change. You know why people have lost faith in the expertocracy? Because they're always wrong. It's not rocket science. It's not complicated. The expertocracy takes on a task. It is normally politically motivated. Uh, that They have certain economic interests. That, the, that their politics and economies kind of correlate or, or converge. They have something to gain financially by this being the outcome, and, and they gain political favor with half the country by this becoming uh, the wish or ambition. But, but they have no, I mean, th th there is no thought given to this. We're not going to power this economy without fossil fuels for a long, long, long time. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, the Republicans have historically not been very creative in their marketing. I got a couple of minutes here. I want to jump on something um, talking about energy and gas and fuel and diesel and kerosene and soybean derived insulation <laughs> on the wires that are more um, more appealing and attractive to rats and mice. It's, and it's all, a good little morsel for all, a rodent. All these other varmints and rodents. Um, the Republican Party is going to try to um, register people to vote. Guess where they're doing it, Rev? I mean, they're, they're, on a, they're on a voter registration drive, and they're going to be at about 2,000 of these locations all over the country. Guess where? Convenience stores near the gas pumps. Okay. Mm. Now, there's some strategy. The stale, pale, and mail party is apparently um, giving in to some of these nuanced uh, marketing and branding and, and whatnot. When I read that, I'm like, Wow. That's the. I mean, that's something the Democrats do. They get creative. That uh, their their voter registration drives are always more successful than the Republicans. Well, when will people most likely to be frustrated with yeah. Democrats? Well, I mean, if you at um, the gas pump, sure. So you've got a, a GOP tent set up in a parking lot. I mean, if if the if the if the convenience store chain is owned by a business man or woman, which it probably is. They're more inclined to be supportive of Republicans. I mean, if you're a business person, I mean, businesses vote by and large, especially small business. I mean, I bet, I bet the Republicans win small business ninety to ten. Corporate America gets different. I mean, there there's some complications there that mom and pops don't have to deal with. There's some distinct advantages there that mom and pops don't benefit from. And I'm talking about lobbying and consulting and K Street and cocktail parties and the Davos man and all those other sorts of things. Not many small businessmen or women at Davos or the World Economic Forum 
So if you're a small business owner and you've got six or eight or 10 convenience stores, there's a high likelihood that you support Republican policies and Republican politics. So why not allow on a Saturday morning or Friday afternoon um, some GOP operatives at the corner of your parking lot registering people to vote as they pay, you know, $4.16 a gallon for gas? Hey, go fill up today. I mean, if you need gas, go fill up. I'm serious. Gas is getting ready to get sky high. What? I mean, gas went from, I mean, oil went from $98 a barrel to $117 a barrel like that. So, yeah. Oh, I hadn't heard that. I mean, that, that'll trail for about three days or so. So, go get gas today or tomorrow. Don't wait until Thursday. Trust me. Don't wait until Thursday to get gas. Uh, it may be too late now because here's what, I mean, the convenience store owners and, and, and chains know what's coming. So, they'll normally start adjusting prices accordingly. Um, if you need gas, go get it as soon as you possibly can because we're going to see another spike north of um north of four dollars here sooner than later because the price of oil the price of gas trails the price of oil um but but it doesn't trail it exactly the same in other words when oil spikes it doesn't take eight days i mean it begins happening gradually and incrementally and that is going to happen it seems to spike pretty fast but then it uh, declines very slowly well it does i've but, noticed but, 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 but let's let's be i want to be honest with you i mean i get that when, when, the, when the price of gas is increasing, the convenience store owner is chasing his money. And, and it, I mean, it, it's hard. I mean, it's real complicated, especially for someone who doesn't, you know, like some of these big franchises that I would imagine have, you know, um, mass buying agreements or big buying agreements. Um, if you're a one or a two or a three convenience store chain or, or four or five, I mean, you, you can really lose a lot of money. When the price of oil increases and you trail those increases, you can't already keep up increasing your price of gas fast enough. Um, in other words, you put gas in the ground at $2.90. You got to replace it with $3.15 a gallon of gas. And you got to wait to sell that to get your money back. Uh, it's called chasing your money in that in that world and language. But, um, but go get gas today. I did see where Maryland and Georgia are suspending their state gas tax the, the Maryland tax is $0.36, cent, the Georgia tax is $0.34, cent, so the fine people of Georgia and Maryland are going to get a bit of a um, kind of reprieve from high, high gas prices in that those state governments are going to suspend collecting the state gas tax. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, the trivia question yesterday about the, the run the UCLA Bruins had, I mean, kind of, kind of wrap your head around that for a second as a sports fan. So there were four years in the late 60s and early 70s that they went 30 and 0. I mean, it's just kind of uh, that is crazy. crazy. They had to be cheating. What was John Wooden doing? And then nobody else was able to do. Wow. Enjoy your day.